new survey by CNBC uh, of equity strategists and portfolio managers, 44% say it will be below 30,000 and just about flat for the year. Others are more optimistic, 25% seeing it nearly $40,000 uh, and an equal amount predicting $50,000. Now, Bitcoin reached a high of nearly $65,000 back in April. And right now you can take a look at Bitcoin. It's trading under $33,000 at about $32,981. What do you think, Beck? Are you, if you were part of that survey, what would you, what would you predict? Oh, I have no idea. I mean, it's pretty volatile. Could go any direction. Um, and 30,000? I don't know. I, I wouldn't bet on this. How about you? I will take, by the end of the year, I will, uh, and maybe I'll be a cynic here. I will take the under, but if you said 10 years from now, I would take the over. Okay, then I'll take the over just to play the other side. What's Joe say? Happy Bitcoin Tuesday, freaks. It's your boy, Matt O'Dell, here for another Citadel Dispatch. This is episode 29. Uh, special shout out to our ride or die freaks joining us in the live chat, considering Euro 2020 is going on right now, Spain versus Italy. Um, so I appreciate you guys choosing us over uh, that match. Um, if you... If, if if you feel the need to go watch that, uh, you can always watch our archives after the fact at CitadelDispatch.com. They're hosted on BitcoinTV.com. Um, full downloads, no ads. Uh, you can even torrent if you want uh, via BitcoinTV.com, which is pretty fucking cool. Um, if you're joining us on the audio feed, that was CNBC um, speculating on price because they have a survey of... of uh, I guess a bunch of rich people who think Bitcoin's going to be under 30K at the end of the year. Um, that formally marks bear hunting season for us. Um, it's, uh, it's just pretty interesting watching how quick people switch uh, from bullish to bearish in these cycles. Uh, it's, it doesn't matter how many times you've been in the space, uh, how long you've been in the space, it, it catches you off guard every single time. Uh, so it will be cool to watch them get caught with their pants down. Um, what else do I have for us? Uh, today, we will be focusing on privacy and security best practices. Um, I have two return guests here. I have Keto Miner of Noddle and Craig Raw of Sparrow Wallet. Um, I think together the three of us should have a very insightful conversation here about, um, you know, Probably the most important thing for Bitcoiners today, which is 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 getting your privacy and security in order um, before the price goes up uh, and you end up securing a lot more money than you are currently holding. This is Citadel Dispatch, the interactive live show about Bitcoin distributed systems, privacy and open source software. As I said earlier, this is dispatch number 29. 
Uh, we've been coming to you live for over six months now. Um, and as I said earlier, all of those archives are available at silldispatch.com. I want to thank all the freaks who continue to support the show and help keep it ad-free, commercial-free with no sponsors. Uh, that is how I want to continue. I am here with you guys, ride or die. Let's fucking make it happen. So I do appreciate all the freaks supporting the show. Um, you can do that through citadeldispatch.com. You can also do that through our LNURL link on the QR code on the bottom left if you're watching the video stream. And my favorite way of having you guys support the show is through Podcasting 2.0 apps, uh, which you can look up on newpodcastapps.com, which allows you to stream sats directly to dispatch. Um, every, every day uh, after we record live and I post it up to our RSS feed, um, I watch the sats stream in from listeners around the world who are using the Podcasting 2.0 apps. My favorite one being Breeze. Um, we also have a Sphinx Tribe, which allows you to not only stream sats, but also we ha it's a private chat that runs through the Lightning Network, and you can donate in, the, in that tribe as well. Um, so all links for that is also at citadeldispatch.com. Once again, thank you guys for supporting the show. You are what makes Dispatch unique and special. Um, so with all that said, I want to welcome Keto Miner onto the show again. Keto, what's up? How's it going? What's up, freaks? Fuck yes. And Craig Raw, how's it going, Craig? Yeah, good, man. Thanks for having me back, Matt. Yeah, so I mean, I love all of our conversations and uh, I'm excited to have you guys both as as return guests. I, I think uh, the more your presence is on Dispatch, the better for all for the whole audience and all of us included, including myself. Um, I think this discussion will be kind of wide ranging. Uh, we do have a decent amount of freaks joining us live here with the live chat. So I expect them to be throwing questions as us as um, we continue uh, this conversation. Um, I don't know really where we should start at first. Uh, you know, I, I think, I think maybe um, we should, maybe let's just start with a little check-in with Sparrow, Craig, because I feel like when you first came on dispatch, I don't even know what episode that was. I guess I should have looked that up ahead of time. But I feel like Sparrow uh, has come a long way since then. Um, yeah, it's just been building away. Um, I don't know, Matt. For for me, it's it's you know I, I don't really um, think too much about how much it's growing. You know, it's it's not like there's an incentive model there where I get paid more um, the more people that you sort of use it really. Um, so for me, it's it's just a case of of trying to. Uh, add the features that make sense and squash any bugs that um, might come as fast as I can. Um, but I'm I'm pretty proud of it. Uh, I think it's um, it's starting to uh, become seen as a decent option. I hope. Um, so yeah, I'm, uh, I kind of just like uh, the fact that the vision that I had is now kind of a real thing in the world. And um, yeah, it uh, certainly gets me up every day and uh, I'm proud to be part of the whole sort of Bitcoin ethos that we're in. Awesome. I mean, uh, off the top of my head, you know, I guess this is, I mean, you said uh, you don't you don't really get paid the more users that are using Sparrow, which is true. But uh, one thing I did think of while you were just speaking there um, is you did you did add a donation page, I believe, since last time you were on Dispatch. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, you can go to sparrowwallet.com slash donate. 
Um, and I'm very grateful for sure of any, you know, you know, donations that I get. Um, but you know, it's, it's not about that for me, you know, I, I didn't, you know, begin this whole thing looking for that. Um, for me, it's really just about trying to be trying to provide uh, a decent option, mainly for people to realize the store of value that Bitcoin holds, right? That's the number one use case. It's kind of like the, the sort of email use case that the internet had in the sort of early days that really brought it to the fore. And that's the number one use use case. I just kind of wanted to nail that and do it in uh, a way that I thought was best. Um, so that's kind of what drives me. Yeah. And then I guess the other thing that the other big addition that I saw, I mean, they, uh, we could talk about the trade-offs here a little bit. Um, you almost kind of, I felt like you added it begrudgingly was that you added, uh, integrated Bitcoin wallet tracker so that you can just run Bitcoin core on the same machine as Sparrow um, for easier setup without an Electrum personal server, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, I've obviously got my um, my sort of drawbacks uh, to doing it that way. Um, but I think it's a valid approach. And, you know, as I as I, I think I have like a pinned sort of tweet, which which says, you know, the ideas that I had to start are not the ideas that I have now. You know, I kind of had this idea that it has to be the best way or, you know, don't even do it. And what I've realized is that you actually need to kind of take people on this journey where many people, I mean, are not, in fact, most people are not going to start off with their own node and running servers behind the node. And it's just way too much. But, you know, job number one is to get people to get their coins off an exchange. So, you know, if you can just get people to download a non-custodial wallet, and even if they're using a public server, you know, you've done like 70, 80% of the job, you know, for me, that's critical. And then moving to a Bitcoin Core wallet, yeah, sure, you know, Bitcoin Core, the wallet does store all of the addresses in plain text, not ideal for cold storage. But, you know, again, now you're at least private. And then moving to the Electrum server, that's just really getting to the stage where even if your server gets, you know, taken out of your hands or hacked or whatever, no one can tell what's going on. You know, so long so long as as your wallet is encrypted, you're good. So yeah, I mean, I, I did add that, and I sort of now see it as part of the journey. Um, so that's that's kind of um, that kind of happened in retrospect, but I think it's good. It's there. Yeah, I mean, I think this is something that a lot of us, uh, a lot of us that are obsessed with Bitcoin, we tend to get into the weeds, uh, you know, especially on Bitcoin Twitter and on this show. I mean, this show is a, you know, a more technical focused show um, for more dedicated Bitcoiners and maybe them helping their friends and family is kind of like the target market that I've looked at for the the freaks and the audience here. Um and I feel like, you know, sometimes I just, I'm sitting there like having a beer and I'm just like, we get so far into the weeds and 95% of people are just buying Bitcoin on Robinhood and they can't even withdraw it if they wanted to. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, that's my, my big sort of worry, right, is that if we don't get enough people to custody their own Bitcoin, we're going to get rehypothecated Bitcoin, right? That's going to happen. I mean, if if the risk is minimal, there'll always be some risk. But if the risk is minimal, 
then people are going to do it and they might get away way way with it and that's that's the big worry to, to, to me right that's what we have to avoid so you know making wallets that are easy to use that's kind of what that's the the sort of ethos here right that's that's what i'm trying to trying to do anyway yeah and kind of trying like uh trying to get users to slowly improve themselves rather than expecting the world for them instantly right yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, I think I was listening to Rabbit Hole re recap, and Mod Modi made made the point like just make a small improvement every day, and I think that that makes a huge amount of sense, right? So just getting people to download a wallet, get their coins off the exchange, great idea. You know, that's that's what I just try and try and do. And if they're using a surf server which reveals the XPUB, you know, I don't worry too much about that because I know that further down down the line, once they're more, you know, familiar with what's going on, hopefully the soft software has taken them on a journey to to kind of get to the point where they're thinking, oh, maybe I should go off and buy myself a noddle. You know, um, that's that's kind of what I think we need need to do. It it can't just be landed on them on day one. Right, and I mean, this is something keto miner that you've been. Uh... I guess battling your own demons with over at, at Noddle. Uh, I mean, Noddle was originally, I guess, when Noddle hit the market, uh, there really wasn't many of these dedicated node projects, and I, I feel like Noddle kind of aimed to be a more user-friendly option, a, a plug-and-play. You just buy this device, and it just works. Um, yeah, I guess. At the time we launched, Casa just launched, uh, and uh, the only order on the market was uh, I don't I'm not sure I recall the name correctly, Seedbox or something. The the one which was like a, an Intel NUC with just Bitcoin Core pre-installed on it, basically, and uh, and the company who was supposed initially to make the the Samurai partnership, but they closed shop just before they they did. Um, yeah, and, and when I when I first started doing a full node, it was basically just to to run Bitcoin Core and go through Andreas' book and all the all the comments uh, because I didn't want to do it on my own computer. Um, uh, back then, the blockchain was probably sixty or seventy gigs, uh, and and you could run that on a Raspberry Zero. Yeah, so I mean, I feel like as a Noddle user, uh, I had one of the original Noddles. Um, did you, you never really decided to go full grandma mode. Do you want to like talk about why that decision was or like how you've had to deal with support requests and the different levels of tech levels of your users? I mean, I, I think... Um, you know, if if mo most of our audience here listens to pretty much every dispatch, I assume, um, at least that's what the download listen numbers look like. Um, and we had uh, we recently had this uh, this node roundtable uh, with uh, the majority, the overwhelming majority of dedicated node projects um, on for that show. Um, and one thing that becomes very clear if you start looking at those different projects is they all kind of try and target different demographics. Um, and on one side, you have like the Ronin Dojos and the Raspberry Blitz. 
that's definitely a more advanced user set. Um, you know, they uh, Raspberry Blitz still doesn't have a GUI. Uh, they have like a command line style GUI. Um, Ronin Jojo just recently added, you know, a, a more sexy GUI, but it's definitely a more advanced user product. Um, and then you have like the my nodes and the umbrals and the start nines that are trying to hold your hand as much as possible and be pretty and as user friendly as possible. And I feel like Noddle kind of sits in the middle somewhere. Um, yeah, totally. We 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 definitely sit in the middle. We we are trying to be more on the user friendly side, um, and uh, at the same time, we are working on the advanced user mode in which you can just uh, use the UI to edit the configuration files and do whatever you want in them. Um, but yeah, we, we just recently started working with a UX person to, to, to work on the onboarding process and, uh, and have something much more user-friendly like for the first contact. And, uh, during this, this setup process, you will be able like to choose if you want to run in the user-friendly mode or in the advanced mode. Um, yeah, but, but yeah, today we are definitely like really in the middle and, uh, my goal was not necessarily to be like very user friendly, but to uh, to follow some best practices. Like uh, the probably the first lines of code I wrote was the installation script for Bitcoin Core, which verifies the signatures uh, and uh, and gives you a precise error. Like uh, I failed to download, failed to verify signatures. Uh, something weird with pgp happened and so on so that was like the first bricks and uh yeah and we, we are trying to do that as much as possible for everything because i feel like there's uh i've i'm trying to um put a connection here between what you guys have been doing at noddle and what craig has been working on with sparrow i feel like you guys both are kind of hitting that balance in the middle between trying to be user-friendly and pretty um, while also not trying to sugarcoat the important stuff, uh, which I feel like is not a typical... It's it's not it's not a typical result of what you would see in closed source, you know, Silicon Valley software. Um, which is just constantly trying to be like the super polished UX and just hide everything from the user and hide all the trade-offs from the user. Um, so a lot of experienced dev teams, I feel like try and go that Silicon Valley approach, but maybe what we really want to see in Bitcoin land in terms of increasing that sovereign Bitcoiner base, that base that uses their own node, makes every spend a coin join, avoids KYC, um, helps their friends and family, tries to broaden the circular economy. Trying to increase that base is, is not an easy process. Um, it takes a lot of education, which is what I've been focused on is on the education side. But I feel like tools like both of yours, where it kind of bridges the gap, where it, it allows, it doesn't, it doesn't sugarcoat shit but it's, it's still very clean software. Do you know what I mean? Like the, the, I feel like, is, was this an active uh, goal by you guys, or did you just stumble into that result? Because that's what I'm witnessing. 
I'm happy to have a go at that. Yeah, Matt, I, I very much agree. Um, you know, if you look at what the kind of uh, Silicon Valley VC world is trying to do, they're trying to take responsibility away from the user, um, make them into con consumers of those those goods, right? Which is for me like very different from what we're trying to do here in Bitcoin, where we're trying to give people responsibility over their own money, right? The the kind of value that they earn in their life. And for, for me, that's that requires a very different mindset. So, uh, you know, I look back at a, at a career which has been spent mostly, you know, kind of building products in that VC kind of world. And uh, I really feel it's quite different from what I'm doing now. Um, so, you know, whether, you know, I can't say that I had a conscious sort of thought to go and build it this, this way, but it certainly, Sparrow is, you know, the design that I kind of wanted to build was to, you know, give somebody who really took that responsibility seriously and sort of wanted to take ownership of their life, of their money, not kind of put it into the hands of others who can do whatever they want, want with it and give them the tools um, to be able to really know what's going on, to like not hide anything, but still make it easy enough to use so they don't have to go down to the command line or, you know, um, use UIs that are just very obtuse. So yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's absolutely a different thing that we're trying to build build here. Yeah, and, and I guess hiding too much stuff can be very fast dangerous. And uh, we, as you said, we are talking to people who want to take back the the ownership and the control over their money, and uh, they should realize that it's not easy, <laughs> that there are risks, and. Uh, and they have to to do choices in educated ways, um, and, and yeah, hiding too much stuff can just lead to mistakes and uh, and overconfidence. Yeah, I tend to agree, um, which is why I'm a big advocate for both of your uh, projects. Um, so, I mean, with all that said, I mean, first of all, you know, classic uh, disclaimer: I don't want to. Uh, our audience to get overwhelmed when it comes to privacy and security. Um, they, it is a, it is a constant step improvement. You should just constantly be seeking to improve yourself. The number one thing is to realize how much information you're really leaking out there. And um, the reality is, is that we are leaking tons and tons of information on a daily basis, um, not just in Bitcoin land, but also in Bitcoin land. Um, in Bitcoin, it's extra dangerous because real money is on the line and the Bitcoin blockchain is presumably forever, if we are correct. Uh, this chain will last um, longer than any of us will last um, and it will have a record of all the transactions there. So mistakes you make today uh, can be used against you in the future and we should assume they will be used against you in the future. And if you mix that with the growing surveillance state, both on the government side and the corporate surveillance side, and the mix together of those two entities, those two forces of surveillance uh, together, you combine that with Bitcoin information and all of a sudden um, our financial transactions are an open book. So it's really important that Bitcoiners today start realizing how important this is and start taking steps to improve their processes. 
Um, so with all that said, I mean, let's just dump, jump into the weeds. I mean, I, I have a list here of, of things that, that Craig mentioned that I would love to talk about. Um, and then I, you know, there's a bunch of different things we can talk about, but, uh, before we get started, uh, we had this, we had this recent scare with Spectre wallet, another, uh, another project that aims to interface with your node and use it with hardware wallets. Um, so similar target market as Sparrow. Um, what's really cool about the two of them is you can, you can use them interchangeably. Um, because they operate on the same standards. So if you're, for instance, running a noddle and you have it connected to Spectre, um, you can also connect that noddle to Sparrow and use it with the same devices. Um, so it allows you to switch between the different projects relatively painlessly. Um, it also lets you um, verify what each is showing you if you're running two separate machines, one with Sparrow plus uh, a node, whether that's Bitcoin Core or Electrum Server and one with Spectre plus a node. Um, so with Spectre, very popular project. Um, my main go-to guide in terms of getting started with self-sovereign storage is using a cold card plus Spectre. Um, their Windows binary, they had a scare with. So during the build process of building that Windows install file, that Windows application file, uh, the .exe, um, they were afraid that they did it on an infected machine and it carried a Trojan. Um, so we've talked about on the show in the past about how users should verify PGP signatures to make sure that, for instance, Craig actually built the Sparrow binary that you're installing. Um, but in this case, uh, if the Spectre vulnerability was true, which it turned out to be a false alarm, it wasn't, um, verifying the PGP signatures alone wouldn't have done anything for you. It wouldn't have protected you because um, the the Spectre developer actually did build that that binary uh, and signed it with his actual PGP key. Uh, it just had a, they, they just thought that maybe a Trojan had slipped into that build process. So it wouldn't have protected you from the, on the PGP side. Um, so I'm curious, you know, both of you guys ship software. I, I guess we'll start with Craig. How do you feel, like, did this wake you up at all to your build processes? Is this, is this something that you're actively considering before it happened? Uh, how do you view like your relationship with your users in turn? I mean, obviously they could build from source, but the overwhelming majority of users are probably not building from source and probably will never build from source. So how do you view that as a, when you threat model that out for you and your users? Yeah. I mean, you know, look, I, I think, first of all, I just want to say, I think Spectre guys handled it very, very well. You know, they were fully upfront with it and kind of pulled, you know, uh, pulled that particular binary down until they found that it was the actually sort of a false positive from some antivirus, I think. Um, you know, I think what you need to do is is to really just make sure that the build environment that you're using is is sort of clean. You know, I think that that's really clear and and... You know, that's some, something which, you know, I think I'm doing pretty well, but I can always be better. Um, so just making sure that, you know, the the kind of machines that that final binary is built on just have absolutely zero uh, chance of, well, as, as little chance as you can get of some kind of infection trying to creep in. You know, I think from a, um, in the particular world of Java that I work in, um, 
it's going to be pretty hard because the Java builds um, are just extremely, um, I, I don't know how, how to say it, but they're just very um, um, sort of uh, basically put together, together, together in a way that it's really hard for anything alien to be able to come in there. Um, that's not to say that it couldn't happen, and I'm certainly trying to dream up ways in which it could. But I think, you know, largely it's just really about trying to make sure that the build process that you have is good. The second point is really trying to make sure that whatever dependencies you are, you sort of need to bring in in order to do the work that you're doing, that you have a very clear idea of what they are. So, you know, when I build, you know, look at something that I'm, I need, 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 need to add some kind of a, a, a new software, um, you know, lib to add to be able to get a new feature in, what I do is I see, well, what else is that thing trying to bring in? And if it's too much, then I just won't use it. Um, and it's really just about, it's not only about trying to get the size of the binary down, but it's also just about trying to make sure that you understand that when that binary is built, you know what size it should be. And you can look through it and just kind of eyeball it and say, okay, yes, this makes sense. All of those files are correct. So those kind of things is also things that you can do. Um, you know, yeah, I, I think um, ultimately, you know, the more people that look look at it, the more people that build, um, ultimately getting deterministic builds is a great step, step forward as well. Um, we're all trying to work towards that, but companies like Apple make it very hard. Um, so, yeah, th those, I guess, are my, my sort of headline thoughts, Matt. Um, so, I mean... Yeah, I guess there's. Well, first of all, Kira, you have anything to add there? Yeah, I would just. I would like to go back a little to what actually happened. Like um, when I've seen this alert, uh, my first thought were like, uh, it's pretty unlikely it's not a false positive actually, because the two ways it could have happened is or the build machine itself being infected, and if you check the signature of this uh, of what matched uh, in this antivirus if I remember correctly it's a ransomware so you usually notice uh, that on your computer uh, and second possibility would be someone else uploading a malicious binary to the repository with a correct signature which is even less likely um, and it's not like we don't have a history of open source projects, especially crypto and privacy related that trigger uh, antiviruses. So, yeah, it, of course, uh, from outside, it was impossible to, to judge 100%, but it was pretty, uh, the probability was pretty high that it was a false positive, for, especially coming from one or two antiviruses out of 20 different ones. Um, so so Craig yep. mentioned uh, deterministic builds, reproducible yeah, builds. Yeah, so that was my second point. Like uh, I, we, so we at Nodder we don't don't deliver um, almost any binaries. It's all interpreted code, so you can read the code that is actually executed anyway. Uh, but if we were to deliver any binaries, uh, uh, deterministic builds are definitely the way to go because you can like in your build chain you could have two totally separate environments, two different computers, uh, 
building the binary and compare it at the end if it matches uh then you can assume your computers are fine and the binary is fine if one of them is different uh you can assume that one of these two computers are doing something strange um also like try to avoid using any stuff pulled from external repositories not only dependencies but for example if you're using like a, a base os uh docker image in your build uh, this image can very well be very uh, can be compromised um, i don't recall exactly but i think there were some occurrences when some some uh, uh, images on the docker hub like official images were were compromised with something already that, that already happened um, so yeah like really control your your strip your build environment to the bare minimum. Uh, for example, when I'm building even for tests uh, like BTC Pay Server on my local development machine, I run the build itself in a virtual machine, which is like the base OS with nothing in it, uh, only, only .NET and the source code, and, and I build it there. Um, yeah, like ha just have full control, and and as Craig said, like on Windows and Mac, obviously it's more complicated than on uh, on Linux. Um, I mean, most people, if you want to have signed binaries, most people should start at least playing around with a cheap Linux machine. Um, you know, get a cheap Dell or ThinkPad or something, install. Uh, I like Pop OS as a as a learner uh, Linux distro. Um, and at least start trying to get comfortable with it, you know, maybe with the ideal goal long-term to make that your dedicated Bitcoin machine. Um, I think we're doing it again, and we're going to do it many times uh, in this uh, discussion where we jump into the weeds very hard, and I want to be able to pull us back every time we do that. Um, to go to, to, to talk about something that's actionable for the average user to protect themselves, um, you know, the multi-sig approach that both Spectre and uh, Sparrow have focused on do seem to mitigate this concern a bit. Uh, obviously, if there was a Trojan, um, you would still have a privacy risk, uh, which Craig talks about a lot of times, specifically with the, the default setup that a lot of people use on Spectre, which I'm guilty of recommending as well, where you run core directly on the same machine. So you do have... Um, all your all your transaction information is on that machine, so you do have a privacy risk there. But if you're using multi-sig uh, with hardware wallets, the different hardware wallets, um, and you're verifying the transaction information on on your actual devices before you sign them, um, it would mitigate this risk, right? Yeah, as long yeah. as you can do that, I, I I think I'm not sure all hardware wallets allow you to do that yet. Um, maybe Craig can can help me on that, but I I think some of them just don't show anything meaningful when you do multi sig. Yeah, they, they look they're gradually getting there, and I think they're getting there pretty fast. Um, I've just had a, a sort of a new batch of the the sort of newer ones um, arrive at my, my desk and, and definitely multi-seg is becoming a must-have. So those that don't do it, do it well, I think will need to um, up their game pretty fast um, in order to stay in the game. But at a high level, what, you're, what we're trying to do there 
um, as a broader community is is reduce single points of failure, right? So even if um, Spectre or Sparrow is compromised, um, you would you would basically need a combination of that and a plurality of your hardware devices and user error in order to lose funds in that kind of situation, right? That's right, Matt. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, that, that's that's the sort of that's the sort of goal um, that we're all trying to work, you know, towards. Um, and we don't have to get there on day one, as we say. Um, but so long as people are kind of learning all the time about the different factors that go into that, um, it's definitely something that can can be done. I mean, I'm I like to say that if you if you are using single sig with a cold card you basically understand 70 you know percent of what you need to to know to move to a multi-sig um it's not that much hard, harder and i'm not trying to push people there i think that people need to kind of get there in their own own time but um it's often made out to be like this giant leap beyond a single sig set of setup and i i don't think it really is anymore it was for sure but it's not so much anymore um uh, it can definitely be reached. I mean, if anything, the more difficult aspect is then going and securing all those individual backups, right? It's just more things mentally that you're 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 dealing with. Um, but at the same time, that's kind of a, a feature, not a bug, right? I mean, if uh, if any of those individual backups get compromised, it's better, obviously, than if you have a single sig backup get compromised. Yeah, so the way I, I like to think about it is, you know, if you have a mental load anyway because you're going to bed and you're kind of worried that the single SIG setup is sitting there with a lot of cash on it um, and you are concerned and you're kind of it's keeping you up a little bit at night, you know, you whenever you think about it, you're like, mm, I've got a bit of a worry there, price has gone up, then you're already carrying that kind of mental load. And multi-sig just takes that away, right? Now you're thinking to yourself, there's like zero chance, you know. I've got these backups that are in different locations. You know, I've, they, you know, somebody could come here right now and demand it all and I could just say, sorry, you know, it, it can't happen, you know. So for me, it's, it's really about trying to balance the mental load. And, and you'll know when you are carrying that, that sort of load and when you need to seek out the peace of mind that multi-sig can bring. Right. And and just to be clear here, I mean, in terms of accessibility, uh, the fact that I have both of you on is uh, fantastic because, um, I mean, if, if if you're a new user and you buy a noddle and you plug it in um, and you update it and then you connect it to ideally a dedicated laptop um, or desktop uh, with Sparrow Wallet running, uh, that's a relatively easy, accessible setup process. And all of a sudden... Um, you have a more secure, uh, a more secure way of using Bitcoin than the ninety-nine percent of people out there, and and the fact that that exists, that capability exists, um, in a relatively accessible way, is absolutely understated. I, I think people don't realize how far we've come. You know, two years ago, um, that kind of setup would have been way, way, way less accessible to the average user. Um. So I have a bunch of, I have like six different people who privately messaged me telling me uh, that I shouldn't uh, schedule 
Citadel dispatches during Euro 2020. As far as I'm concerned, freaks, um, Euro 2020 using Bitcoin Tuesdays to to do games um, is a state attack. So uh, that tournament will be over soon. Uh, like I said, um, the archives are always available. You you are missed if you're not in the live chat right now. Um, the live chat is what makes this great. Um, but uh, there's really nothing we could do about that. And I'm just glad that we're still having these great conversations about Bitcoin. Um, the, so let's, let's jump into this. So, so, so we have BIP 47 on the list to discuss. Um, BIP 47, uh, is this reusable payment code, uh, that allows individuals to accept, uh, the main, the main use case to me, um, and the samurai guys will disagree with me is for, uh, easily accepting donations. And I had Gladstein, Alex Gladstein from uh, chief strategy officer of HRF last week. And it's a lot of, it's, it's work that I've been doing with him on the sidelines in terms of getting activists to be able to easily accept Bitcoin without running, you know, without running, quite frankly, without running BTC pay server on some, you know, server somewhere. Um, which a lot of times requires KYC, has overhead costs, has its own privacy concerns that you have to deal with in terms of trying to obtain a server without KYCing yourself. I know uh, Keto Miner has a side project that allows you to do that uh, using Bitcoin, but that's not really my point here. The cool thing about BIP47 is that you have this, um, you just have this text string that you can post in a Twitter bio or something like that, and people can donate to you uh, without reusing the same address. Now, unfortunately, the biggest trade-off that we have to deal with with BIP47 right now is Samurai Wallet is the only ones who have implemented it. And if you don't have wide wallet support, specifically Samurai Wallet is only Android. Um, as far as I'm concerned, people should, if they're an iPhone user, they should consider switching from iPhone. But if they don't want to switch from iPhone, they should buy a cheap Pixel and use it as their dedicated Samurai device. But as a project at Citadel Dispatch that's trying to really adopt the ethos of free open source software um, and not have advertisements, we're heavily donation-based. And we're constantly seeking out alternatives to how we can accept donations. And one of the issues to me with BIP47 is that if I post this payment code, there's only one wallet where people can donate from. And I, I'm so instead, I've opted for LNURL. I've adopted, you know, these podcasting 2.0 apps, um, but they have similar issues. You know, there's not all Lightning wallets support it. Um, so what we really want to see is we want to see broad adoption of all of these standards. But let's we're focusing on BIP47 here, which is on chain, allows you to do, you know, many donations, many payments to a known text string without reusing addresses. Um, I know, Craig, you've been pretty decently outspoken about considering integrating it into Sparrow Wallet. I'm curious on what your thoughts are there around it and, and whether or not you think it's a good fit for Sparrow. Yeah, so I mean, let me take a step back, Matt, and, and first of all, just kind of talk about um, what I actually wanted to do uh, here was just... Um, help the freaks understand, you know, why I think we're only seeing it in one wallet to date, right? Um, you know, because there's been a lot of kind of uh, rumors and ideas going on around, you know, why have so few wallets um, built this thing thing in? 
So, you know, here's the perspective of a dev who's been trying to do it, trying to look look into it. And I've just kind of wanted to, without, you know, uh, without trying to say it's good or bad or anything, actually, just trying to, trying to say, like, here's the challenges that are uh, incurred when you try and, and build against this particular spec. Um, in order to do this, I'm going to have to dive into a few technical details, but hopefully it will be not too bad and I won't go too deep into it. Let's um, go deep. I'm down. All righty. So with BIP47, you've got what are now four versions of this particular spec. Um, we're going to go through the different versions because I think it's useful um, and I think it's valid. You, you kind of have to understand where this thing has come, come from in order to understand where it's going. So version one, um, which was released back in 2015, so it's been around a while. Uh, so we, we have these, as Matt described, we have these payment codes. Um, everyone who has a BIP47 capable wallet can get a payment code. And with that payment code, somebody who wants to pay you can send a special transaction with a certain kind of output called an op return out output. And if they do that, then basically what happens is that there's this private wallet, which is your wallet as the owner of the BIF47 wallet. It's like your own kind of a new wallet that you would create. Um, but it's only visible, or at least the addresses are only visible to the person who's trying to pay you, to the person who created this output, which is called a notification output. Right, so that's what basically how BIP47 works. Now, um, the first thing to be aware of is that when you create this output um, that that sets this whole thing thing up, you are probably going to have some change from from it because this particular output has no real value attached to it; it's just kind of got a very minimal amount to it. So that change amount that gets sent back um, has a certain privacy risk attached to it. Okay, so if if you are now um, using that change output and you use it to pay someone else, they can then look back at that change output, link it back to the payment code that you sent this notification output to, and then they can tell that you want to create that link. So there is a bit of privacy leakage there. And what the spec advises or suggests at least is that that change output should be coin joined. Now, that imply, I mean, that, they don't say it must must be, but you can see that why they would advise it. Now, that implies that a wallet needs to have access to a coin join, you know, um, uh, kind of um, um, sort of some feature. kind of collaborative transaction tool yeah, built in the wallet. That's it. That's it. So, you know, so that's one thing that, you know, you, right kind of off off the bat as as you begin you kind of realize okay well that's something that we'll have to think about how we're going to build now once this link has been created what happens is that the that you as the receiver of the payments basically have this new wallet and this new wallet you have to then have a set of addresses which you create up to the gap limit which is usually you know sort of 20 and that allows you to receive, you know, the, then the the, the um, payee, the person who's trying to send you the donation, can then create an address, which you will then receive the money for. And nobody else in the world will be able to know that they then sent, you know, that um, 
um, sort of Bitcoin transaction to you. Now, um, every time that you receive a new notification output that someone creates this link, you get a new wallet with a new set of addresses attached to it. Now, there's some interesting things to think think about when you're trying to build against against this, right? So, so all HD wallets, all kind of BIP32 wallets, you currently have to support two lists of addresses. You have to support the receive addresses and the change ad addresses, right? And these are lists that grow in length over time. So adding one of these BIP47 wallets whenever you create this link is basically a new list. And this has this kind of list of addresses that have all the UTXOs that hang off, off them is the major um, kind of data store and server kind of load that you have to place on any wallet. So it's, it's quite a big thing that you're now taking a number which is bounded at two and you're making it into a longer kind of list, right? So that's some, something that a wallet dev needs to think about. Um, for example, right now, if you are using the current Electris build and you open, you know, three or four decent sized wallets, it's going to really start to battle. Um, now, the new version which is coming out is going to make that better, but it's still something to think about because what makes it struggle is the number of subscribed addresses that you have. Every subscribed address, whenever there's a new transaction that comes in on the mempool, it needs to be matched against that particular wallet. And you're trying to see, well, does this apply to my wallet or not? And the more of those addresses that you add is the more load that that server has to bear. So it is something that you need to think, think about. And you also, as the owner of the BIP47 wallet, have no control, obviously, over the number of times somebody opens one of these 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 kind of links, right? So you, have you to could, almost assume it's infinite, right? Because you're gonna, I'm, if I publicly post, yeah. if I publicly post my payment code, you know, with Samurai, it's called Paynim. Like uh, an attacker can just come in and create a bunch of different relationships, right? Correct, correct. So you know, I'm not trying to say it's bad or good. In fact, I can't see any other way way to do it. But I'm just trying to say these are the things that one has to think about when trying to build against 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 it the, you know the the last thing i want is that somebody fires up you know um sparrow wallet and the thing just doesn't doesn't work right that's that's uh, not a situation which i can have so I, I do need to consider as i build this how do i deal with that um then getting back to the fact we're still on version one here we're still looking at the old legacy pay to pub key hash outputs which means that if you are using a nice native Seg SegWit wallet, you will have to receive on these old style addresses. That means that your Sparrow wallet now has to either understand different script types or you just need to actually, when you set up your wallet, have an old um, script, script, script type and incur the higher fees that comes with that. So those are a few thoughts around version, version one. Now, Version two, we can skip past because it uses Bloom filters, which we don't really have in Bitcoin anymore. So um, we can move on to version three. The nice thing about version three is that it takes away this um, this kind of op return output, which was a big part of why I think people didn't uh, go for BIP47 at the start. And what it replaces it with 
is a bare multi-sig one of three output. And what that means is that you have basically a transaction output that you can slide into any other transaction that you have. So you don't have to create a specific, you know, kind of very easy to identify, you know, link, you know, instead you can just add it to any other kind of um, Bitcoin uh, transaction action that you're making. And it can appear fairly, I mean, these outputs are not common, but at least it's not something completely unique. Um, however, there is an issue with this, right? And I didn't actually realize this until I kind of read the spec about three, three times. But one of the issues here is that you actually need to listen for a key within the output script. You can't kind of listen to the output script as a whole. You have to listen to just a part of it. Now, server pro protocols are just not generally designed for this. So Bitcoin Core can't do this today. Electrum servers can't do this today. What the author, Justice, um, has basically, uh, you know, his kind of approach to this is to use BIP 157, which is the BIP for complex block filter filters, the successor to Bloom. And he's basically created a enhanced blue um, an enhanced filter um, which allows you to then look inside the script so it's almost like saying here's the middle part of the address and we we just want to match on characters you know 10 to 20 right we don't want to care about the other ones on either side and um, that's quite a challenge now as far as i know and i might be wrong um, uh, this particular filter has not been added to Bitcoin Core. So if you wanted to go in and do this today, I'm not sure that you could. Um, again, this is you know just me trying to figure it out. So um, uh, this is one of the issues trying to overcome with version three. Assuming that we can do this with version three, you then have um, these lists of addresses, which you then need to listen for again. But in version three, you need to listen to three different script script types. You need to listen to pay to pub key. You need to listen to pay. You need to listen to the the kind of native seg 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 segwit version that we all hopefully use today. And you need to listen to pay to pub pub key hash, which is the old version one. So you now have not only an unbounded list of these um, lists of 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 sort of. Um, addresses that you need to listen to, but you multiply that by three as well. So that does increase the load. Now, I was a bit concerned about this, so Justice and I had a chat, and it resulted in version four of this spec, of the 47 spec, which is now has a different, different name, but it's the same thing. And that is basically where one only has to listen to a native SegWit seg seg list. So now we're just down to basically the kind of one the, the kind of unbounded list, but there's only one script script type rather than three. And that's kind of where I am um, trying to figure this entire thing thing out. I hope, uh, you know, I kind of hope that that's help, helpful for people to understand that these things are not necessarily easy to do. Uh, it's been one of the more challenging areas that I've been trying to work work on to try and figure it out. So, yeah, I hope that made some sense. No, I mean, that was extremely insightful. Um, I appreciate you going through your thought process in terms of integrating it with Sparrow. Um, I mean, 
from my understanding, a group of core developers uh, in the BIP 47 V1 said that they they don't think it should be implemented. And the, the main two arguments that I've heard or my understanding of them, my basic understanding of them is, is the, the first main argument is, is that that notification transaction is an inefficient use of block space. Um, we are streaming mempool.space right now, a live view of mempool, uh, of, of mempools, uh, at least their specific mempool, but I know my mempool also matches what they're showing right now. And, you know, we're sitting at Bitcoin at over thirty thousand uh, dollars. Adoption is supposedly higher than it's ever been, and uh, mempools are completely empty right now. So I don't think that block space is a very good argument against using it. And if anything, um, if Bip forty seven helps create a, f- a fee market, then in the future, you know, you can have more efficient versions of it. And then the second thing was. Um, you could have a, I think they called it mystery shopper attack where someone sends uh, Bitcoin UTXOs to your uh, payment code and then tries to track those payments, which to me is just inherently an issue with accepting any Bitcoin payments publicly. I mean, if I, on BTC pay server, that's the number one way that you would try and de-anonymize someone's BTC pay server. If we're going to go from a, a framing of an activist or something in an authoritarian country um, accepting Bitcoin donations through a public BTC pay server, um, I would expect their government to send Bitcoin donations, uh, fake Bitcoin, well, real Bitcoin, but but you know Bitcoin donations into that into that BTC pay server and then try and track you spending those and maybe watch for a user making a mistake in terms of. Um, combining UTXOs after the fact and using the common in- input ownership heuristic to to tell that if, if if there's two inputs, three inputs in a transaction, they're probably all owned by the same person, uh, which kind of goes hand in hand with what you said earlier, which is almost like um, if you want to implement this in a safe way, you need to have a, like, a full suite of tools. You need to have uh, coin control with labeling where people can actually choose which UTXOs they spend and, and keep track of them. And then a collaborative transaction tools, whether that's uncoordinated two-person coin joins, pay joins, um, or 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 coordinated coin joins, something like Whirlpool. Um, so you you kind of need to have all the different bases. But even if you don't, um, do we agree that that you know receiving payments through a BIP forty-seven payment code is strictly better than? than the status quo, which is probably just posting an address and reusing that address over and over again. Yeah, of course, Matt. Um, there's no no doubt. Yeah, look, I mean, I've I've seen, you know, people, you know, quote what the, you know, some people said way, way back back when. I, I, I don't think it's really all that material. Um, I, I would hope that wallet devs today are not depending on the opinions of you know that were said many years ago, and are have probably been somewhat you know mis mis sort of quoted anyway. Um, I think we should all just think for ourselves. And um, I guess my point of view is is just coming from you know let's actually try and build this thing and see what 
you know how how close we can get to actually doing doing so. Um, so yeah, I I I I just kind of feel that Bitcoin Core gets quite a lot of flack for it, but it's really immaterial. It's you know we should all just look at the spec, and if you want to build it, build it. Um, well, I mean, it, I think don't... you know in 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 reality, there's there's always shades of gray. Um, but there, but there's definitely, there's, there's definitely validity in an argument that there is a s- small group of developers, um, that most people follow that other developers follow in terms of, of what they should be prioritizing and what they should be working on. And, and we, we do as Bitcoiners fall into victim of, of groupthink in that regard. Um, like a almost level of a, appeal to authority. And and for better or worse, like I think one of the most valuable aspects of Bitcoin is the culture around core development in terms of being ultra conservative. But um, when we're looking at, you know, I, I went on a, a bit of a tirade on Twitter today. Like when you're when you're looking at the reality of of Bitcoin right now, um, the overwhelming majority of people are using it in the least private way possible. Um which is custodial exchanges. And then the few that are actually removing themselves from custodial exchanges are constantly reusing addresses. They're not using their own node. Um, so there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that can be improved just by offering you know, better, more user-friendly tools to, to users, right? Um, you know, my tirade specifically today was like the glass node charts that show like, accum- they call it accumulation addresses which are addresses that are constantly receiving Bitcoin and they're, they're stacking, right? And they, they, I've had people tag me and they're like, oh, Matt, like this is a chart showing everyone stacking sats. And it's like, no, this is a chart of people that don't listen to the show for the last three years and are still reusing addresses. And, and to me, it's a bearish chart when we see, you know, 600,000 addresses all reusing constantly. Um. I'm curious what uh, I want to get to keto, but before I get to keto, Craig, I'm like, how does taproot addresses, native taproot addresses fall into your thought process here with BIP 47? That's actually really interesting, Matt. I I don't have a great answer for you, but I'm, I'm hoping that um, the signature algorithms in there will make it easier to get this, um, this kind of key exchange done. Um, And I'm not deep enough into taproot yet to be sure that that is the case so i don't want to say that it is but um i believe that there might be some scope uh in terms of the way the signing is done and the way the signatures are tweaked that um we might be able to get some some kind of easier and more hidden kind of methods there to be able able to do it but yeah it's it's kind of one of those things that i still need to get my head more into but in the short in the short term i mean that would be just another set of addresses that you're going to have to track right that the wallet's going to have to track and the node's going to have to track correct correct i mean that's the way but what if 47 7 works um you know I, I think that the servers that we run are getting more powerful with time um and i'm sure keto will have some ideas ideas on this he has to deal with this stuff all the time um but you know um yeah, it, I, I, I guess we just kind of have to find a way to do it that um, doesn't 
put too much load, for example, on the public service, 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 service that are being being run. We don't want those to fall over. We don't want people to kind of just have this um, unbounded kind of list that just grows and grows and eventually their kind of home node will fall over. I don't think that that's um, you know, going to happen off the bat. I think it would take quite a while for that to actually occur. But it is still a concern that you have to at least think about at the offset. If anything, it's a bigger concern for the public nodes, no? Because, I mean, like, yeah, maybe if you're Uncle Jimming and you're, you know, I got, I mean, be the most, I mean, to me, it'd be the most bullish thing ever if I had like 100 close friends and family using my node. Like, we're not even close to that, but... um I mean, if, if I'm running Electris on a Noddle, I mean, Keto Miner, let's get you in here. Like if I'm running Electris on, uh, on a Noddle and I'm using it with, I'm using it and I have like five or 10 family members and they're all using it with BIP 47, like we're not even clear, close to that, uh, that overhead being a bottleneck for us, right? Well, I, I, I'm not sure, you know, sometimes only running um, a pretty heavy Electrum wallet uh, against Electrum Rust server and running Lightning at the same time uh, doesn't work when the when the mempool is heavy or stuff like that. So, yeah, I think I think anything track requiring constant tracking of transactions is is uh, is becoming a, a bigger and bigger issue as time goes. Um, th there are some solutions that seem to do it in a smoother way like the nb explorer library used by btc pay server uh, that's a pretty good tracker it's actually very lightweight and uh, it, it was built from the beginning to track thousands of addresses um so maybe the answer is something somewhere in between like some me tracking middleware that wouldn't be a full electron server but but would be interfaced with uh with bitcoin core only for tracking uh transactions i don't know um okay so i mean that's just something that we're just going to constantly be up against then right is is that is is trying to reduce that overhead in terms of both server usage but also um you know both on the efficiency side of the of whatever you're running on your server plus the efficiency side of of whatever's hitting the server right yeah um I, yeah, to me, at, at yeah. the end of the day, you always need to track these these addresses or, or transactions or whatever you are looking for. So, the the best thing you can do is to do it in the most efficient way. And yeah, I I guess like from a purely server overhead uh, point of view, having a BTC Pay server for donations is probably lighter than running your own BIP forty seven server. Yeah, but I mean, you wouldn't. So, so with Samurai's implementation, they have a, um, they have a shorter code. They have so you have your payment code, and then your payment code is just reliant on your own node, and then they have a shorter code that's like a username lookup, a randomly generated username, which is the pay name, and they manage that server, but that's just a lookup for your payment code, right? That's right, yeah. So so you're really when you're using BIP forty seven with Samurai with your own dojo, um, you're running your own 
BIP47 server. You're running your own payment code server. As far as I know, Matt, um, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm not precisely sure how they do it, but they've obviously made, made it work. So it can be done. And, um, you know, we all just kind of need to uh, understand, understand that it's it's not a hill that can't be climbed. You know, it's, it's just um, we need to kind of try and figure out the ways to do it. I'd be really yeah. interested to know how they are implementing version 3. Um, hopefully I can ask them a little bit more, more about that because that's kind of the biggest barrier to me right now is, you know, how do we get past this need to, to not only uh, scan for lots of ad addresses, but to actually scan within a particular output script and to find a particular key within an out output script. Because as I say, Bitcoin Core, you can't do that today. Electrum server, you basically create a script hash, which is you basically just hash the output script. So, you know, you, you can't do that with just part of it. Um, so, you know, how they're doing that, um, I presume it's using the, the sort of compact block filters. But um, if those haven't been built into core, um, you know, I'm, I'm not super familiar with um, how many people have turned compact block filters on when they install their node. Uh, is that a default set of setting? I don't think it is. Um, and if so, this particular enhancement that the author of BIP47 has put forward, like, is that supported? Um, though that's kind of where I am, I guess, with my... So, you know, I'm sure so I'm going to get it soon. I'm curious, Keto, like... Do you have any insight here? My understanding is that Dojo is, uh, you started it with Noddle before they implemented it, but Dojo now, they're not using filters at all. They're not using block filters at all. It's it's Electris. They're running Electris if you run Dojo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They use, uh, they use Electris inside uh, the Dojo stack, yeah. Um. Okay. Yeah. yeah I, and just to uh, to answer Craig, yeah. So compact filters are not enabled by default, indeed, and they are pretty recent in the mainstream core. They were in not uh, in uh, Luke's fork, and uh, I think they were f merged finally in uh, in the mainstream core in zero twenty one. They like Thank they you. Luke specifically put it in knots uh, for Wasabi, and then Wasabi implemented knots as built-in package. Uh, for Wasabi, um, so that and, they can get the block. And we were actually budget. running notes until until Bitcoin Core zero twenty one for for our Lightning backends uh, because we are we are running Neutrino with our own private servers. Um, that's interesting. Uh, so yeah, so I mean, look, everything has trade offs. Um, you know, just to go back, like one of the things I mentioned is is one of the the most valuable aspects of Bitcoin to me is this culture at, at among core development to be as conservative as possible. But we don't have that same culture with Lightning. And I, I think that's probably for the better. Um, it's a, it's a, a quicker development process uh, with different trade-offs set up. But the result is that a lot of the negatives that people have mentioned about these on-chain aspects. Uh, a perfect example is uh, that 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 change during the BIP47 uh, notification process that you say, Craig, needs to be coin-joined, which it should be, um, are trade-offs that are made every day by every Lightning user. I mean, I, I just saw um, 
Nifty Nay, uh, C Lightning developer with Blockstream, um, on the mailing list saying that every UTXO that you connect to a Lightning node should be coin joined first. Um, so these are trade offs that they're actively making. Um, so to me, to have on chain tools that are making similar trade offs isn't the end of the world. There, it's better to have those in our tool set. Um, we have IFH in uh, the live chat asking what is the easiest way for someone to accept lightning donations in a static way. Um, and you basically have two options right now. You, you either can use LN bits to create an LN URL um, with your own node, um, or you can use LN transaction bot. Uh, we had Fiat Jaff on the show a couple weeks ago, uh, maybe over a month ago. Um, who's the maintainer of that, that is custodial, right? And that's another trade-off you're making. You're trusting him with your privacy and your funds. But if you're constantly pulling those that those funds off of that custodial wallet, it might not be the worst trade-off in the world, but it is a trade-off. And I, I think um, rather than focusing on perfect, um, when it comes to user-focused tools, uh, not the protocol. The protocol, I understand that we should be as conservative as possible, but when it comes to actually user tools, it's good to have many different options with different trade-offs. I, I think uh, people will use those and it's it's super helpful. But IFH, to be clear, that static LN URL is what I have in the bottom left-hand corner, that QR code. So if you scan that QR code with supporting wallets, unfortunately not all Lightning wallets support it, um, but if you scan that with a supporting wallet, it'll allow you to pay whatever you want to pay. And you can also include a memo, which is really cool. I have people donate to the show uh, and they give me feedback in their donation. So um, I, I take your feedback more seriously if your donation's higher. <laughs> I'm just, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so that's cool. Um, okay, so BIP47, Sparrow's going to implement it soon. He's just, uh, Craig's just working on the specifics, right, Craig? Absolutely, Matt. Awesome. Looking forward to that. So let's jump into Whirlpool. Because uh, you can't implement BIP47 unless you have um, some kind of collaborative transaction tools. Um, what is what, what do you want to focus on with Whirlpool here? I mean, you put it on the docket to discuss. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I guess actually I have, you know, really some questions is uh, do people kind of view it as as winning the coin join implementation if is is that a, a an idea that makes any sense because you know one of the things that i really like about it is the fact that you can see the amount of unspent capacity um now before the show i was trying to find the same kind of figure for join market um and for wasabi and i i couldn't um i don't know if they if it's just that my skills weren't enough to figure that thing out um, but you know, over three thousand Bitcoin in, un in 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 sort of un unspent capacity is pretty good, um, and it it just it just kind of seems to me that they have figured out the incentive model um, behind this in a way that the other implementations haven't necessarily you know done. Uh, what do you guys think? So, I mean, obviously, this is a topic that I've been pretty focused on. Um, I mean, you, you can look up stats for the other CoinJoin implementations. Um, if, you go to, if you go to whirlpoolstats.com, 
uh, it redirects to at Typerbole's uh, tracking website. And he tracks Whirlpool volume, uh, join market volume, and Wasabi volume. Um, there, it's really apples and oranges. You can't really compare Whirlpool unspent capacity to these other volume numbers. And the reason is, is because the way Samurai has set up their coin join implementation is they've set it up so that you have this structured liquidity pool. And that's what this unspent capacity pool is. And the cool part about that is it, it feels like a tangible goal that we can work towards increasing that liquidity pool. And, and the, the difference is, is, is when you, when you use something like Whirlpool, um, when you use Whirlpool, the, the way their Sybil mechanism works is you pay less fees the more money you send in at a given time. And that's that transaction zero. When you send in the transaction zero, your fees are flat based on which pool you decide to join. Um, and then those, those transactions, if, if let's say you're going, let's say you're going into the million sat pool in Whirlpool and you go in with 5 million sats or a little bit over 5 million sats because you have to pay the Whirlpool fee. So you go in with a little bit over than 5 million sats, you're going to have seven UTXOs are going to get created. You're going to have 5 million, uh, you're going you're gonna to have five 1 million sat UTXOs going into Whirlpool. You're going to have one UTXO that is paying your Whirlpool fee to the Samurai developers. And then you're going to have one UTXO, which is your change output, which is underneath. It's, it's, it's whatever is left over that couldn't fit into that 1 million sat denomination. And then those five UTXOs are going into five different rounds of coin join. They're not in the same round. None of them are allowed to be in the same round. And that's that Sybil mechanism involved. Then once you've entered this coin join pool, it sits in there. And as long as you're running uh, Whirlpool, which you can run 24-7 very easily with Noddle or Ronin Dojo or Umbral, um, they will constantly provide remix. They'll constantly be remixing in that pool to any new users who join that pool. And the idea is to try and interconnect all those mixes. Every single round has can be traced on the blockchain all the way back to the first Whirlpool mix that ever happened. And they should be able to go forward from that point as long as at least one person, one participant out of those five UTXOs that are in each round goes on to another round. So even if you don't, ideally you should be actively keeping Whirlpool on, but even if you don't, as long as other participants in your round are constantly in Whirlpool and constantly providing liquidity, the the probability of which UTXO is yours grows with the set, right? Like you're you're intermixed into the set, and it's this idea of creating this like structured liquidity pool that is um, provides as much privacy as possible for a new user who just comes in and maybe only does one round. Like they should really be doing more rounds, but if they just do one round, like they should have, you know, uh, a, a lower like a, a harder chance, a harder probability, a lower probability of guessing wh which UTX is theirs when they come out because it's connected to the previous mixes and the future mixes. Um, so it feels like a tangible goal of something we can work towards. And, it, and, and the result there is as more users are entering the system, over time, your anonymity set shouldn't degrade. This idea of 
you're one of a thousand people or one of 2000 people or one of 4,000 people in these other implementations, specifically Wasabi, your an anonymity set tends to degrade over time. So if you do like a round and, and you're in Wasabi and you do around 70 people, um, and 65 of those people end up sending to a KYC exchange or combining their outputs afterwards and then sending to a KYC exchange or whatever doxing their their coins in some way, your anonymity set is being ruined over time and you don't even realize. Um, so this idea of the unspent capacity is a very cool metric to me. It's also a metric that can't be easily gamed um, because every UTXO in that unspent capacity um, calculation is something that's sitting there in post whirlpool. You can't then recycle, you can't recycle it back through and get counted twice. But if you're going at just, um, if you're going at just naive volume numbers, you can recycle UTXOs and just keep sending them back in. And now that will cost you money. But if you are, the the coordinated coin joins like if if you're the one running the coordinated coin joins in this case wasabi wasabi doesn't have to pay that coin join fee so so i'm not accusing them of doing it but i'm just saying that you you basically with without that unspent capacity metric if you're looking at just pure wasabi volumes you're trusting that they're not constantly recycling volume through their coin joins right because the unspent capacity is literally transactions that are sitting there in in post whirlpool utxo so 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 yes the samurai devs could be inflating that number with their own utxos but they can only do it once they can't constantly recycle it to increase can increase that number um so to me the unspent capacity is a very tangible number it's a harder to game number and it's something that we've been very focused on at the on on rabbit hole recap, we talk about it every the beginning of every episode. Um, on top of that, what's cool about Whirlpool is it was made from the get go. It was built from the get go to share that liquidity pool with other wallet developers, and and the reason for that is because we don't have many people using CoinJoin. Period. Right now, like I. One of the biggest promoters of CoinJoin. There's no way for me to tell exactly how many people are using CoinJoin, but across the three implementations, I, I can safely say that it's less than 10,000 people, right? It's not that many people are using CoinJoin. And it's further split between those three implementations. Some people are using JoinMarket, some people are using Wasabi, some people are using uh, Whirlpool. And so that small anonymity set that we already have of 10,000 people um, or less than 10,000 people um, is further split. So the individual privacy you get of any of the individual tools is, is reduced. Um, so what we want to see is we want to see CoinJoin get added to every wallet and we want to see them sharing liquidity pools would be the ideal. And just to be clear to listeners who are watching the live stream, the reason the live chat just got erased was because there was some scammer who posted something. So I, I deleted the live chat, blocked him, and then repopped it up just to let you know. The So where I'm getting at here is they set up Whirlpool in a way that if you integrate it into Sparrow Wallet, they will give you a cut of all fees that come in 
through Sparrow. Um, so you can monetize your wallet in an ethical way without adding fiat on ramps or what other elements that Bitcoin wallets or ads that Bitcoin wa- or, or tracking that Bitcoin wallets add to try and monetize. Um, so you can monetize your wallet while providing your users better privacy. And the main negative that people have against Whirlpool is that you can use it without your own node. And in that case, Samurai knows your XPubs. They don't know your IP address because it defaults to Tor, but they know your XPubs. And if there's a subset, if there's a majority of people that are using it without their own node, then Samurai can reverse construct and and remove that anonymity set that you think you have that you don't because they know all the different uh, addresses of the non-node users. But if Sparrow Wallet adds it and Blue Wallet adds it and Ledger adds it and all these different wallets add it, maybe not all users will use their own node, but because there'll be different nodes that are being used by the light users, it splits up that threshold of the amount of people that are using it. So it, it makes, not only does it increase the overall usage and anonymity set of all Whirlpool users, it also removes, uh, it mitigates that main concern that a lot of people have that you have these light client users that are, are trusting Samurai with their with their address history. Does, does any of this make sense that I've been talking for a while? Well, that was great, Matt. Thank you. Um, yeah, uh, certainly got, got a lot from the from, from that. Um, and I'm definitely looking at Whirlpool. Um, you know, it's, I think becoming clear to me at least that, um, it's, it's, you know, it's certainly the most recommended coin join that I'm seeing, um, you know, just kind of out there. Um, and I, I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, the highest, the highest kind of, you know, credibility pool providing them the, the, the largest anonymity sets. Um, so that, that kind of makes a lot of sense. But as I was saying earlier, what I really like about it is the fact that the incentives have been chosen, you know, just for example, um, having a flat fee to enter a pool obviously incentivizes you to increase the amount of Bitcoin that you're going to mix because, you know, you're always looking at the ratio between the fee that you spend to the amount that you mix. And if the, the fee is flat, then you obviously say, well, great, I'm just going to, you know, mix as much as I can. So that that those kind of clever choices um, make a lot of sense to me. Um, I think... Uh, and I, I kind of want to get in into this uh, as we get further into the chat, but really, privacy only works when it has, I think, additional, you know, kind of incentives, or it's built in a clever way so that you feel like you're winning when you do it. Um, there's there's some something about that, um, you know, as much as we would like to believe that everyone wants to be private for its own sake. Um, I think that it only really works when it kind of almost becomes part of a bigger package. Um, and I just think... hundred percent. Yeah. In- incentives are everything. And, and just to be clear, on the, in terms of providing liquidity, join market 
you know, nailed the incentive structure for the makers uh, in, in terms of, of the people who are providing liquidity um, because you can actually get paid to run join market 24 um, seven with, with Samurai, you get basically paid in privacy because your, your privacy increases, the more your liquidity is sitting in there. Um, I would argue that the incentive on the taker side is almost more important because um, with join market, what we saw is we we do have a dedicated you know sub thousand group of makers that are constantly providing liquidity because both idealistic reasons and because they can make some money off of it. Um, but if we want to if we want to get that total coin join user number you know above ten thousand, if we want to get it to fifty thousand to a hundred thousand people, um, you have to make it as accessible as possible for uh, the average user who's, who's not going to be a maker. He's a guy who comes in as a, as a taker and, and just wants to, you know, pay a little bit of Bitcoin and, and get better privacy as a result. Um, so the incentives are very important, but also how you, who those incentives are focused on are, are extra important. And I, I think, yeah, I, it's 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 definitely it's definitely a a very nuanced topic. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't go as far as saying that uh, the liquidity pool of of Samurai is is the largest. Um, naive raw numbers would would say that um, Wasabi is larger, but like I said the 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 liquidity pool is not is not structured well it's not a strong foundation that wasabi is built on top of um there's all these different little aspects of the way their implementation works that doesn't incentivize remixing you have to pay a fee constantly if you're if you're remixing you 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 get to choose which rounds you participate in which makes it cheaper for a sybil attacker a sybil attacker pays the same fees that are that a quote unquote good user or a benevolent actor pays. Um, so it's not as Sybil resistant. And then on top of that, with both of these coordinated coin join implementations, you don't have Sybil resistance um, from the actual coordinator because the main Sybil resistance, especially in this today's fee market, which we're looking at mempool.space right now, which is just one sat per byte, you get into the next block. Um, the main Sybil resistance is the actual coin join fee which is paid to the coordinator themselves. So in Samurai's case, it's paid to Samurai, and Wasabi's case is paid to Wasabi. Um, and both of those coordinators could, could you know, flood rounds at minimal cost to themselves, uh, except for the minor fees. And if, if, if I'm correct in that the fee market will increase, then, <laughs> then that becomes less of an issue because you have the civil resistance of the actual transaction fees. We just haven't gotten there, and you know. Whatever I've been eating crow about the uh, people give me shit about the 200k price call, but the big one for me is the mempool. Like I uh, mempools, like I just I did not expect that we were going to get one sat per byte right now in this in 2021, um, especially amid a minor a alleged minor crackdown in China where hash rates down a shit ton, and you can just get confirmed in one sat per byte. But I, I think I think what Samurai is building in terms of the whirlpool implementation is just a really really strong foundation 
that we can work off of. Uh, that is really, really good on-chain properties. When you look at how it looks on-chain um, and the defaults that they have set, um, and I, I feel good trying to increase that liquidity. And I think the next step is we need more wallets to basically integrate Whirlpool. And that's what I've been trying to um, facilitate behind the scenes. Um, and I hope that we'll see some more wallets do it specifically. I mean, Sparrow would be absolutely fantastic. You know, one of the best in class desktop wallets, but I would love to see an iPhone wallet add it as well, because I, I think that's a, you know, I mean, there's just a lot of Bitcoiners that use iPhones. So for better or worse. So- so, so, so Matt, let me ask you this. If I was to play devil's advocate here, um, and let's assume that all of these wallets integrate against, against it, are we not increasing the risk in a way of kind of centralizing all of the implementations on one kind of server endpoint? Does that make any sense? So, the, so there's two servers. There's the Samurai wallet, tracking server, which is for Samurai wallet users that are not using their own node, um, which is like wh- whatever their modified version of Electris is or whatever they're running. Um, and then there's a separate Whirlpool server. Um, we, if, if we have more wallets using Whirlpool, then we are creating a central point of failure on the Whirlpool server in terms of uptime. Um, but that Whirlpool server is blinded. So the Whirlpool server doesn't have any, there's no, there's no privacy risk with that Whirlpool server. Um, every time you connect to it, you connect to it with a new Tor identity. Uh, you're not giving it XPubs, you're serving it individual addresses. Um, so, so it doesn't add a centralized risk in terms of privacy it does add a basically denial of service risk in terms of you're going to have, you know, one Whirlpool server, maybe a backup Whirlpool server um, that is coordinating all of these coin join rounds. But, you know, theoretically in a worst case scenario, let's say we have Sparrow wallet and five other wallets, uh, six other wallets, all using the same Whirlpool liquidity pool. And, you know, AMLD 10 comes out or whatever. Like I think we're on six right now and they're like super aggressive against CoinJoin, and they go after the samurai team and they, they shut down the whirlpool servers. Um, someone else can launch their own coordinator through uh tour, make it an onion only service and maybe have some kind of web of trust, you know, ideally a NIM or something that already has a reputation can launch it, but otherwise it'll take some time to get new reputation there. Um, but but you can run you can run the whirlpool server just completely through onion and not you know have it tied to your identity um but the the key aspect there is is who's ever running that whirlpool server is not they're not a privacy risk they're they're purely a uh uptime or uh you know they 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 purely just need to be there to coordinate but they're they're blind to what's actually happening okay yeah no that that i think makes some 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 sense i think the main thing is you know even if uh, the Whirlpool server does somehow get impacted. The fact that you know we can start it up as a sort of a third-party effort uh, that makes some some sense. I could see how that could 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 work should that unfortunate day ever happen. Um, okay, good. But I think I think that's like uh, 
that's like the most bullish threat model ever for me because like that means like it's heavily being used um and gets taken down in in that situation like if if that situation happens uh to me we're sitting in a way more bullish scenario than i expect otherwise um because it just does not seem like we have that momentum to get it added to more wallets but i would like to see it added to more wallets and i think the number one incentive for it to get added to more wallets isn't privacy and we're talking about incentives here right it's it's that these these wallet developers, and you know this firsthand, Craig, like if you're running a, a, a free open source wallet, um, it is very hard to monetize. And, uh, you know, it, donationware only gets you so far. And if, if, if these wallet developers have a way to monetize their wallet in an ethical way that provides them a steady stream of the best money that humans have ever had in Bitcoin, um, without venture capitalists or any kind of VC funding, um, that's going to create a, a positive feedback loop for any wallet developers that that ultimately decide to integrate it. Um, that, it that aligns them with their users uh, and ideally ends up in, you know, better maintained, fully fleshed out wallets because they have like this steady source of funding that they can rely on, right? Yeah, agreed. Agreed. I, I think it makes a lot of sense. Sense, and that's the kind of why I wanted to raise it, just just to discuss. Um, you know, because it's it seems right right now that we're sort of starting to emerge from a period where a lot of these implementations have been sparring off against each other. And um, you know, as I say, for me, just sitting at looking at it from the outside, I can see and measure how Whirlpool is growing. Uh, which I can't until you send me this link. But even now, it's still quite difficult. It's quite a struggle to see how the others are growing. Um, uh, and also, I just really like incentive models that um, kind of work to the benefit of the user who's actually trying to use the product. Uh, that 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 uh, makes a lot of sense to me. And that that's kind of what translates into success um, in my world, at least. Yeah, I mean, so like... Uh, so join market, which is, I mean, I just think like no one really should be using Wasabi right now, to be honest. Uh, I mean, I, there, I, you can go back, people can go back and listen to my episode with Nopara, but they're working on Wasabi 2.0, um, which is a complete rewrite and a complete change in implementation. And I, I'll reserve judgment on that when that gets released. It hasn't been released yet, but join market is still very effective software. It's hard to use, um, but they made very different trade-off designs and incentive designs. Um, and the two being is that first of all, there isn't really a liquidity pool. You're, you're basically individually going through these makers and each maker is its own liquidity pool. Almost. Um, you're not really mixed in with everyone else. Um, so you don't have this like solid liquidity base to work off of. Um, you know, the, the UX is getting easier to use, especially with, we had open arms on the show with join in box, which is integrated with Raspi Blitz that makes it way easier to use join market. But the number one incentive difference is what we just highlighted, which is individual wallet developers have no reason to implement join market besides possibly incentivize, you know, hoping that more users will use their, their wallet because it has join market built in. Um, there's no financial incentive for them to add it, but there's a financial incentive for Whirlpool to be added to these wallets because you're literally making a portion of the fees. Um, 
it's you know between wasabi and samurai is the first time really that you saw these open source bitcoin projects that had a steady income from their users that also is is not easily you know forkable you, you like you can you can fork it and run your own coordinator but then you're just in a completely different uh liquidity pool and you don't have that liquidity pool to work off of so you're incentivized to to really you know work together there and and then build that single large liquidity pool which i really think we we need um because there's just not that many users seeking privacy so we need to amplify as much as possible the users that are um yeah for sure yet not yet we have right. to yeah i mean look <laughs> we have we have you know nearly 3000 bitcoin so so just to be clear on these unspent capacity numbers Clark Moody has a higher number than Typerbole does because uh, Clark Moody counts um, he, he counts uh, Whirlpool transactions that are waiting to go into Whirlpool that haven't gone in yet. So they're just sitting in the transaction zero, but they haven't actually gone into Whirlpool yet. Why Typerbole waits till after they go in. But uh, so the, the range is I think Typerbole has it at like 2,400 Bitcoin um and clark has it at like 3200 so that's like there's like 800 bitcoin getting ready to go into whirlpool that haven't quite gone in yet um so probably the 2500 number is like the more accurate number but regardless that's a negligible difference in the big scheme of things uh i mean you're talking about someone you're talking about someone like michael saylor or whatever who like personally between his company and his own holdings holds over 150,000 bitcoin right and we're talking about 2,500 Bitcoin, 3,000 Bitcoin. Um, so we, so we, it, it's a it's a big hill for us to climb, and we need to get those numbers up sooner rather than later because it it provides a, and we talked about this when you first came on about multisig. It provides almost a, uh, it's like a warning shot to people who want to attack. So when you talk about multisig, it was this idea that if everyone, if every attacker assumes that you have multisig, they're not going to come into your house and uh, break your knees to try and get uh, your Bitcoin because they'll just assume that it's in multisig and it's going to be a long, arduous process and they're going to have to go to multiple locations. Um, I think when it comes to state actors, when it comes to authoritarian governments that are trying to attack private Bitcoin users, if they see that number go up, if they see this privacy liquidity pool increase, um, they might be motivated to not try and attack the privacy of Bitcoin users because they know that there's a way out for them. Um, so I want to get that number up as soon as possible because I think it reduces the likelihood of large-scale state attack um, on the on the privacy side. Yeah, I think that that, that thinking makes a lot of sense matt for sure yeah um so right now by the way uh freaks uh keto is is dealing with a fire at his fiat job so right now it's just uh the odell and craig show um but he'll he'll be back when he can be back and uh keto if you're listening just chime in when you when you're talkable again um so that was an interesting whirlpool conversation um what are your, I have a bunch of things like, are, are you, what are your thoughts on adding? So, so, so Samurai has two things, right? So Samurai has Whirlpool, which is this coordinated coin join, right? Oh, so that was the other thing that joined market before I get distracted even more. Uh, 
the trade-off the join market made was they didn't want um, that issue that I said with the Whirlpool coordinator, right? Like the Whirlpool coordinator could get shut down, uh, which is not a privacy risk, but it's a denial of service attack, right? Um, so the as far as the join market devs are concerned, and I had the two lead ones on, I had Belcher and Waxwing on, that's not a trade-off they're willing to make, right? So they wanted join market to be as censorship resistant as possible. And that's why there's no centralized coordinator. Every round is coordinated by the maker themselves, um, the person providing the liquidity. Uh, no, it's actually coordinated by the taker. Um, so the maker doesn't know how it's coordinated. Um, so it's coordinated by each individual taker and the taker will coordinate maybe uh, like a, a waterfall of 10 coin joins between 10 different makers. Um, and that way the individual makers, like as long as there's one or two individual makers in there that aren't malicious, then they can't track the transaction through the, the waterfall. Um, and the taker's coordinating all so the taker knows that I'm coordinating it so that the, there's no malicious coordinator. I don't have to rely on a coordinator. But in the reality of the world right now is running a coin join coordinator uh, is completely allowed. Um, so if we can get away with that, if we can get away with having a centralized coordinator to make it an easier UX and a, and a better liquidity profile, um, then we should absolutely do that. And if we can't in the future, then sure, by all means, we'll go to a more censorship resistant model uh, where you don't have a centralized coordinator. But uh, in the meantime, if we can get away with it, I think that's absolutely a, a benefit. Uh, and and this is like a, it's a similar trade off, but even less so than you're talking about with like uh, these larger uh, Electrum servers, public Electrum servers that are run, because those public Electrum servers have a privacy risk attached to them. With this, it's all blinded. Um, so there's no privacy risk. It's just completely a... a denial of service vector um so yeah i mean i so 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 samurai has the coordinated coin joins and then they also have collaborative transactions that are uncoordinated so they have they have a a fake coin join that they do which is called stonewall which is what all their transactions default to on the wallet and that's just me with my own utxos when I do a transaction, it looks on chain, it looks like it's a coin join, a two-person coin join. Then they have Stonewall times two, which is a actual two-person coin join without a coordinator involved. It's just between the two parties. Um, and then they have the pay join, which they call stowaway, which is a, um, it, it looks like an ordinary payment, but one of the inputs is provided by the receiver of the payment to further throw off uh, chain analysis. Um, so they have a mix of these collaborative transactions. Uh, do you foresee adding any of these non-coordinated, um, collaborative well, I, transactions in? I kind of think you have to, um, because, you know, your post post mix, you can't just, um, you know, treat it as you would any, you know, it's, you, you need to think a bit about, about that. And I think Samurai actually advise you, Kind of to keep your coins within your your sort of wallet to take advantage of those different techniques that they have so yeah i i mean i, I def, definitely see it as part of the overall thing you know you kind of have to build one feature at a time but um for sure you know those kind of 
you know, and that's, that's kind of what I wanted to get onto is just being able to take advantage of um, um, steganographic techniques, um, which is the things that you've just, you know, described. Um, I think that that's really important. So um, Sparrow does currently support uh, the pay to end point pay join. Um, and I, I mean, I just think it's really cool. I just also think that it's, uh, it's got an incentive model which doesn't necessarily seem to work all that well. So I'm not super hopeful that, you know, BIP78, I think is what it is, is going to get widespread support. I really hope I'm wrong. But, um, you know, I think we need to be building these additional methods in um, because otherwise, you know, all of that, that sort of mixing that you've done just becomes um, easily, you know, you, you can kind of, see what's going on unless you um, uh, spend those post-mix outputs in the right way. Yeah, I mean, um, so there's like an interesting piece of nuance here in terms of Sparrow, because I, I imagine the majority of Sparrow users are keeping their keys cold on hardware wallets, whether that's single SIG or multi-SIG. Um, and the main trade-off with these coordinated coin joint protocols or just, yeah, I guess the, the main trade-off with the 24 seven coordinated coin joint protocol like Whirlpool is that the keys need to be hot uh, if you want to be participating, right? Um, obviously, if you're going to be a part of a multi-party transaction, um, those keys need to be available to sign the transaction. Uh, so they need to be hot. Um, with the uncoordinated collaborative transactions, uh, whether that's coin swaps, pay join, or these two-person coin joins, um, or maybe even three-person coin joins, they only need to be hot when you're actually coordinating that, when you're actually you know doing that transaction, right? Uh, so presumably you can do that from a hardware wallet, from even a multi-sig setup relatively easily if the UX uh, facilitates it properly. Uh, so like it's in a, in a lot of ways, in terms of UX flow, it is probably an easier thing to implement. I mean, you just, you just talked about page join P2EP, right? I, I assume in Sparrow, the way it's implemented is like basically, well, one side is just always on, right? It's like you're paying a BTC pay server. So they're already hot. And then the side that has, you know, a hardware wallet setup, whether that's multi-sig or single sig, is basically deciding at will, I'm going to do this transaction. So they're able to bring their keys hot just for that, uh, or they're able to sign that transaction um, at the time of, of that transaction, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that 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 is the way it works. You know, one one kind of idea that I thought would be really cool, and I, I this is kind of a long way way off, but I mean, just imagine if we could use cold card CK bunker feature to right. keep keep the, the the sort of the keys cold while we participated in a world world whirlpool. I mean, that would be, uh, you know, I think quite a big win. But um, as I say, it's a long long kind of way off um, to get to that point. But you know, the, these are the kind of ideas that. Um, I think would make it much easier because, you know, if you're looking at it today and you're kind of looking at your cold storage stash and you're trying to decide, should I bring that out of cold storage, mix it and then send it back in? 
you know, there's always the worry of bringing it into a hot wallet, even if you do it a small part at a time. You know, it's 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 just a reason. It's kind of a friction point that might make people uh, not do it. Um, so, you know, if we can remove that friction to some extent, we can we can make it um, just easier to make make that call. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to what I was discussing earlier about trade offs. Um, and if, I mean, if you talk, have you talked to like the samurai ride or die? Like privacy is all that matters. Privacy is your number one priority. Um, they would advise you to keep all your funds hot in Whirlpool constantly until it's time to spend. Um, cause that'll give you the best privacy guarantees. And then if you're talking to someone about security guarantees, they'll say you should keep it in a multi-sig, uh, multi-jurisdictional, like even if you want to spend it, it's going to take yourself a couple months and traveling around the world to, to spend your funds. Um, and and the realistic scenario for a lot of people, the practical scenario in the in the middle ground is you keep a, a decent amount of funds in Whirlpool that are constantly mixing and you try and reduce that risk by also having a cold storage stack. Um, and when it comes time to spend, then you'll send from cold storage back into Whirlpool, let it sit there for a while before you actually come to spend. Um, and then what you mentioned was like the CK bunker idea where that wouldn't actually be cold, but it'd be like cold ish where you have like a plurality of your keys or CK bunker, which is this cold card, basically HSM mode, this hardware signing mode. Um, and you have it with a set number of rules. So like the rules are set in a way that'll authorize a whirlpool transaction, but it won't authorize draining the wallet. Um, which is like a very interesting middle ground to me, I think is a, it could be very useful to people and it would, it, it would, it would probably unlock more liquidity. People would be more comfortable putting more funds in. Now, the reality of the situation though, to go even farther back in this conversation is that these are the, once again, these are the same trade-offs made on lightning. Like with lightning, your wallet is completely hot. And in a lot of times, you're actually even broadcasting your IP address. And and most people, I don't know of anyone really using a multi-sig setup with like signing policies for their Lightning wallet. So it's almost always single sig. Um, and there's a decent amount of funds there. There's whole businesses built in, built on basically having these massive Lightning hot wallets. Um so I feel like there's more nuance there and room for different trade-off balances than people give it credit for. Um, I don't think having a you know a subset of your funds hot so you're using Whirlpool is the biggest risk in the world. It is definitely an additional risk, um, but it's just something that users need to keep in mind, basically. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. I think all of that's very accurate in the way I would see it. So, you know, um, have your cold storage stash, make sure it is cold. Don't load up your cold storage wallet when you don't need those those funds, you know, by all means, like do your key key checks, you know, make sure you can spend from the wallet from time to time to time. That's important to do. But your cold storage wallet, the, the whole idea is that it should be sort of cold and then you keep a certain amount of funds which you can then send send through whirlpool and spend from there um and they're two separate 
amounts. Um, I think that that's the best in class at this mo moment in time. Yeah. Okay. I mean, these are my favorite topics, but damn, they're fucking deep. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, pay join, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head, man. I like, I, people like to hand wave like pay join will be, you know, this great stenographic tool for us, but I, I just, I don't know if the, like the incentives there are just. Yeah, they don't, they do, they just don't seem to, uh, I, I don't know. They, it, it, you know, what you have to have is a merchant who wants to take part and, you know, they have no particular incentive to do that unless they just care about the privacy of the customers who are paying them, which is not a zero thing, but it's, it's, it's not a financial thing. Um, and then, you know, you, you kind of have to, obviously, as the consumer paying the merchant, you have to spend a little bit more in fees because you're including an extra input. Right. So, you know, so it's, it's just, you know, neither of those two things are, are major. And I, I, I would definitely consider it uh, a, a net positive to use it if I could. But um, whether everyone else will see it that, that way, it's, it's, it's harder to see that being the outcome or at least becoming the default. Um, so, it's, yeah. Especially since it's competing with, it's competing with lightning transactions. And on Lightning, our big issue is receiver privacy. Um, but if 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 you're a diligent Bitcoin user and you want sender privacy on on Bitcoin uh, with Lightning, you know you you either spin up a you spin up your own node really quick. Open Arms talks about this a lot. You like spin up your own node, you fund it with a a CoinJoin UTXO, uh, and you you make payments with that for a couple months, and then you shut it down, and and that's going to give you way less fee burden than if you use PayJoin, and that's going to constantly uh, that incentive between Lightning and PayJoin will, will constantly be there. Um, if if you I, all of these assumptions rely on a high fee environment, though, so I'm literally watching. <laughs> why we're <laughs> We're watching the mempool.space and it's just completely empty right now. So who knows? Yeah, that's true. What are your thoughts about CoinSwap, Matt? I mean, you know, I, I, I kind of really like the idea. I think it, it looks super interesting. Um, again, I, wor I sort of wonder about the incentives behind it. But the thing that I, you know, I've seen talked about is, um, you know, what is the market like for people who, who want to exchange their coin history? You know, is, is that some, something that um, is attractive to people? Because you don't know what coin history you're going to get, right? Yeah. Um, and then what are you going to do? You're going to chain analysis your fucking new coin that you got? Yeah. I mean, it's, that's the one question that I haven't fully figured out in my own, own mind, mind yet. Um, I'm just not sure about that one. So I'm trying to check my biases here, so hopefully you can help me. Uh, but to me, when we talk about all these things, when we talk about Lightning, when we talk about PayJoin, when we talk about coin swaps, uh, when we talk about atomic swaps, um, to me, these are all post-mix tools. So I think I think you do coin joins first, um, and coin joins. It's interesting, right? Because 
the main negative, the perceived main negative of CoinJoin, besides the cost, because it is definitely cost you more, you use CoinJoin. Um, the main perceived negative is that it's really visible on chain. Um, but with when you talk about the negatives of something like CoinSwap, it, the, the main negative is actually probably the exact opposite. Um, where if I do like a coin swap with you and let's just say like in the most, um, yeah, I, I don't know, like it's connected to a sanctioned address or something, right? Like, let's say like the most, it's connected to like a known ransomware gang. Um, and then I spend that somewhere and then on chain, it looks like that was just my UTXO the whole fucking time. So then I can get in trouble for that. But with, with coin join, with these equal output coin joins, on on chain it's very obvious you did a coin join and that's perceived as a negative but to me that's kind of it's 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 kind of parallel to encryption with when when i when i send an encrypted message an observer doesn't know what if the encryption sound the observer doesn't know what's in the message right but they know that i sent an encrypted message uh, you know, if you, if you use a VPN, your ISP and your government know that you're encrypting your internet traffic. If they don't collude with the VPN provider, who's actually encrypting your traffic, who's your counterparty there, they don't know what your actual traffic is, but they know it's encrypted. Um, so to me, coin joins are actually this, this, it's brilliant that it's on chain and it's, it's visible on chain that, that it's a privacy seeking collaborative transaction where it breaks the history and the the forward the the forward tracking and the and the history of it. Um, so to me, CoinJoin should be the de facto standard in all of these wallets, and then all these other tools, whether that's opening up a Lightning channel, doing a pay join, doing a coin swap, are something that happens after this uh, equal output coin join. Okay, sure, Matt. But why would you coin swap after you've coin coin joined? What would be the incentive behind that? Because I know Chris Belcher, the author of Coin Coin Swap, says that Coin Swap is a replacement for Coin Join. Um, right. So you know, what would be would it, would it be sort of some way after the the Coin Join has taken place that you would find the need to Coin Swap? Or well, so like the, the Belcher's dream, I and I I fucking love Chris big supporter of his work. I'm, I, I, I financially contribute to his work. I advocate for his work. I loved having him on the show, love having conversations with him. Um, the dream for Chris with coin swaps is that if we have like 40% of Bitcoiners using coin swaps without coin join, just coin swaps, um, the chain analysis companies and the governments that they serve, um, and the corporate surveillance companies that they serve will just hand in the towel and they'll be like, there's no way for us to reasonably assume that this transaction is owned by this person because so many people are using coin swaps. Now, the problem there is that pain point from zero to 40% or whatever the threshold you want to say is the threshold where we have enough Bitcoin transactions that are using coin swaps that it completely throws all your assumptions out the window. That that bootstrap period um, is super dangerous to users in my mind. Um, because like we said earlier, is you're going to get, you know, you're going to get other people's coins and you're not going to really know what the history is of those coins. 
And we're going to have naive chain analysis companies and the governments they serve just assuming that it's yours. And even if you end up defending yourself in court or something, it's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to be a huge fucking headache. And maybe you'll have accounts closed and all this other shit that you have to fucking deal with. So that that middle ground to me is is almost untenable. Like I, we have a hard enough time trying to get CoinJoin usage up. If you have that additional concern that that you don't really know, you know, who you're swapping with, and that you might face punishment based on what you get, um, it, it's obviously going to hinder adoption. Now, why yeah. would someone use it as a postmix tool? The reason someone uses as a postmix tool is because it it will literally it literally breaks the link on chain, right? So on CoinJoin, when they use these equal output coin joins, you're you're muddying the probability waters, right? Like the tracking Bitcoin's a probability game. So every 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 time someone tracks Bitcoin, they're 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 making assumptions and they're assigning probability. Uh, you know, with with these new chain analysis surveillance softwares or whatever, they do it behind the scenes and they have a pretty UX, right? But but basically what's happening is they're assigning probabilities to every transaction to whether or not ownership has changed, right? And um, in particular instances, it's very fucking obvious, right? Like if you if you make a transaction and one one output has um one output is to a wrapped SegWit address, a three address, and the other output is back to a, a native SegWit, a BC1 address, and you sent from a BC1 address, the BC1 output is obviously your change. Uh, you, paid, you, paid a, you paid a wrapped SegWit address and your, your change is the native SegWit. So that's obvious. Uh, if, you, if you pay, people like paying in round numbers. So Craig, if I donate to you and I donate a million sats and then the change is like 432,000 sats and 956 or something. Like that is obviously my change and my donation was the round number. Um, so there, there's certain heuristics that are like pretty obvious probability wise. And then there's ones that are, that, that they're making bigger guesses. And with CoinJoin, they're make, they're, their probability gets completely thrown out the window. If you use a, a Whirlpool CoinJoin, you have five UTXOs go in and there's no deterministic links. There's like 10,000 different combinations that could be that transaction of the way it happened. Um, and you could be any of those five leaving the pool. And then all of a sudden, if, if, that, if two of those people go into another round, then it makes, a, it makes it even more cloudy of a situation. With coin swaps, you literally just break the chain. You're not even... Uh, you're not fucking with the probabilities. You're taking someone else's UTXO uh, that is completely not connected to you on chain. So it's uh, it's more similar to like a, one of these custodial mixers where like you send them Bitcoin, they send you someone else's Bitcoin. Um, so if you need the best privacy, your 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 best solution will would probably be you know uh, equal output coin join and then go into coin swaps. Now, well, why would the average user use coin swaps? Maybe they wouldn't, and that's fine. But if there's a subset of users, then all of a sudden this whole coin swaps idea of, of uh, you know, steganographic uh, privacy, this idea that it looks like a normal transaction, but it's really a coin swap. If there's some people leaving the pool and going into coin swaps, then you have to basically operate under the assumption that anyone leaving the pool could be a coin swap. 
So it, 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 it improves the privacy of all participants of the equal output coin joins if you're in the same liquidity pool, if a subset of those users are using coin swaps, I think. Yeah, that, that makes some, some sense. And we could actually see how, you know, the way that the coin swappers coordinators is with these message boards, or at least that's what's been put forward now. So you could maybe even see how, you know, somebody could say, listen, I only want to coin swap with, with uh, the output from a coin, coin join. I don't want to coin swap with anything else. Um, well, you don't even need. So, so Chris is operating under his join market model where he doesn't want any centralized server. Right, because because that's obviously less censorship resistant. That server could get shut down, but you could have a blinded centralized coin swap server that only allows post whirlpool UTXOs to be in the coin swap. Exactly, and and then you don't even have to coordinate amounts because all the amounts are already equal. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you know then then you you basically don't have to worry about the coin history thing nearly as much. You know, I think I think that that world. Could could just make it a bit easier um, for the coin swap um, to be a more attractive option. Keto, you're back. Yeah, I, I'm back. Isn't isn't that pretty close actually to what Stonewall Two X is doing? So Stonewall Two X is a is a coin join. It's a two person coin join. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a similar concept, right? Where if the majority of people are using just regular Stonewall, which is a one-person coin join that looks like a two-person coin join, and then some people are using the two-person coin join, then you kind of have to operate under the assumption that every time you see one of those, it could be a two-person coin join, even though the majority of them are probably one-person coin joins. But yes, it's a it's a similar concept, and and that's why I think it's just good to have all these different postmix tools. But I, I mean, I also think I'm part of the minority that thinks Lightning's a postmix tool, unless you get onboarded directly to Lightning, which might be a thing in you know a high fee, a high sustained fee market. I don't know. Once again, I don't know how, when that's going to happen because I was completely caught off guard by the current one we're in. Um, but yeah, but that, if, that, if you're coming that, from on chain, you should always it should be coin join into Lightning every time. Period. Back to the, that coin swap and inheriting someone else's coin history. I, I think I personally prefer to go straight from uh, mixing to spending uh, because at least I know that uh, these coins, the only histor visible history of my coins is the mixing. Uh, so yeah, unless the coin swap happens with someone who, with also some coins straight from the mixer, I probably not use that. Yeah, I mean, what what I'm envisioning here, and it's what the samurai guys have talked about, is that all participants would be post mixed. Yeah. So it just it just furthers the privacy guarantees that you would get, rather than if you were just playing. Uh, if you were just just purely using CoinJoin, right? Is that really different from just one more round? I mean, it's all numbers, right? I I don't know. Uh, good good question. Yeah, that is a question. Uh, yeah, I maybe maybe not. Maybe not if they're the same liquidity pool and you're swapping with your own liquidity pool. And except that, I think it makes the liquidity pool denser 
right? Like you're just adding another link between two rounds within that wider liquidity pool that didn't exist previously. Um, and maybe, maybe you have time as a constraint, right? We both know that remixing and the, the way Whirlpool is implemented um, takes a while. Um, but if you have a time constraint, uh, and let's say you're a mobile user and you just do one Whirlpool round and then you go into a coin swap, um, you're getting probably significantly more privacy uh, than you would otherwise, right? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, I don't know. We're on the bleeding edge of all this shit. No one really wants to talk about it. Um, and so I, I, I think it's the same situation for atomic swaps, right? So coin swaps are atomic swaps that happen on Bitcoin only. And then a, atomic swaps is more generally alluded to as going into an alt chain and then switching back. Yeah. Um, the most common one being cited is, is Monero because it has confidential transactions already built in um, and ring signatures. Um, so basically every Monero transaction is a coin join. Um, and it's the same thing because you hear the Monero stands they they'll, they'll say that they don't want to swap with a Bitcoin user because they don't want that Bitcoin history. <laughs> Interesting. So making it a post-mix tool solves that. And, uh, and, and this is one of the, the interesting back and forths I have with the Monero group is that, you know, they say that CoinJoin is not something that should be worked on. Like you should just switch to Monero, but at the same time, in the same breath, they'll say they won't swap, they won't trade their Monero for Bitcoin because the majority of Bitcoin that's being traded for Monero has bad history attached to it. Okay, so uh, anything that you swap with Monero should automatically be CoinJoin. It should all be post-mix. Yeah. I literally think that we should make as many transactions as possible CoinJoin. Literally, every, everything we talk about should be a post-mix tool, basically, after CoinJoin. Like, the, the default on-chain should be CoinJoin. Even if it's even if it's a fake CoinJoin, like a stone wall, and it just looks like a CoinJoin, it should at least be a decoy CoinJoin. Now, the, the major issue there is block space and fees, right? Because if you're faking a CoinJoin every transaction, you're going to pay significantly more in fees. But I, you know, I think privacy is worth it. I, I don't know. I, uh, it, it's, it's definitely not an easy solution. And then there's no, there's no easy solution. No, there isn't. Yeah, I mean, people can use wallets that don't do that. I just think that we should be pushing at least the, the free open source wallets that the community really, the hardcore community likes, should should all have you know some kind of collaborative transaction tools built in automatically. Yeah, and I think you know the the sort of challenge here is to build them in an easy to use use way. Um, you know, that's not to say that the tools built today are super hard hard to use, um, but uh, I like to believe that things can always be easier and make more more sense, and the sort of UI can help help with that. So, yeah, I, I think that that's definitely something that we can work on. Um, you know, now that we've got the kind of basic. Um, we, we're sort of starting to figure out what works and what doesn't, not only from an implementation, but also from an incentive point of view. 
I think we can start to tweak the sort of UI, which is which always comes later on. You know, you kind of you have to um, just get the thing to work first, and then you can kind of iterate over the UI and kind of make it easy for people to use. Because you know, I mean, I, I've I, I've sort of been through Whirlpool and it's it's great, but it's it certainly wasn't obvious to me at all times exactly what was going going on. I kind of had to read and go back back to the docs and stuff. So. Uh, I'm sure that I'm not alone in that, um, and you know that's what good UX does. Is it kind of just makes it makes it easier. Um, you kind of you feel secure and in control as you're doing it. To be clear here, I don't pretend to know all the answers, right? Um, I just, I just, I think the status quo right now is so poor for privacy that these discussions need to be had. Um, these discussions need to be had and we need to push the ecosystem forward because um, if we stay at the status quo, the end result is 99% of Bitcoin users, full financial transaction history is being tracked constantly, relatively easily. Um, and the discussion it just isn't happening really. And it, I, 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 the, one of the reasons I started Dispatch in the first place was because I think these topics need, you know, open discussion on a constant basis. Yeah, and I, you know, that's right. But I, I think, as I'm say, saying, it's, it's sort of, you know, if you look at how far we've come with multisig, you know, I mean, just a few years, years, years ago, it was really hard. I mean, like almost to the point where you would have to write your own code in order to get a multi-sig wallet up. Like there, there was almost no other way to do it. And, you know, if you wanted to use hard, hardware wallets as well, you know, um, you were basically, you know, it, it was just going to be super, super, super hard. So now it's it's just a few years down, down the line and it's become much easier. Um, so it's really about trying to get the incentive right and then get the sort of UX right um, in order to make these these things um, become part of people's lives, so it's just become some something that you do because you you realize that it's the best idea, and um, if you don't do it, you're likely to worry about it, or it's going to become the sort of mental load that I was talk, talking about earlier. You know, you're kind of thinking, oh well, I haven't done that right, so now people are going to know about my transactions. They may going to know how much I'm being paid. They're going to know where I spend. You know, all of these things that we think about that other people are not think, thinking about, that I think needs to become, you know, clearer. And um, I, I just have a belief that good, um, good soft, soft software can help make it obvious. You know, if you can, for example, you know, show somebody in a UI how the different UTXOs um, or different sort of TXOs as they are spent are connected to each other, you can kind of, kind of say, well, did you know that Joe Bloggs, who you paid the other day, knows how much you earn because your salary went straight out to him, and the change then came back. Um, it was a round amount, as you were saying, saying that. So those kind of things, people don't think think about, but it's mainly just because they're hidden. Um, and as Bitcoin itself and you know the way that it works becomes more well understood, so you know the soft software can can evolve and just show you what's going going on and that's kind of um the, the ethos behind showing as much detail as i do in the wallet that i build is just you know i think it's important because if you don't know the stuff then 
ultimately it's going to hurt hurt you. You you need to understand how the protocol works to some degree. Otherwise, you're always going to be you know there's always going to be people who under, who understand and kind of use that knowledge against 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 you at least can. Yeah, sovereignty and personal responsibility is always going to be more difficult, no matter what, uh, because it requires some responsibility of the user. Um, so I, I don't expect that we will have 100% penetration with these types of things. Um, but I want it to get to a point where someone who realizes the need is able to access them and use them effectively without too much effort. I, I think a perfect example right now is this you know, this El Salvador legal tender law is like, if we have people right now, you know, buying sandwiches and stuff, um, we, we don't want the person they pay for the sandwich to know how much money they have or how much money they're making. And we don't want their government to know either. And we don't want the million different corporations that all want to leverage that information for ads and monetization, uh, to have that information either. And it's, it's a very, this is not a ab, you know an abstract goal. This is this is a very realistic, pragmatic thing that if we have people spending Bitcoin on a day to day basis using Bitcoin, um, the default should be relatively reasonable in terms of privacy, and they shouldn't they shouldn't have to go above and beyond to try and protect themselves. Um, you know, one we're talking about incentives a lot here, and I mean, one of the things that that we're really up against is this insidious KYC that's just spreading, and regulatory compliance and air quotes that's spreading through the industry, um, and no one really wants to talk up against it because it's how they pay their rent. You know, it's it's how it's it, these companies, these regulated companies have the most money. Um, they're the most profitable businesses. Um, and, you know, a lot of influential Bitcoin people, you know, make, make a lot of money off the backs of those companies and their regulatory compliance. And the fact that we have these large KYC databases being built up on, on whose transaction is which, um, pushes back against basically everything we're fighting for. Uh, and it's, it's a very dark incentive that people don't really discuss. I, I had Belcher and, and Waxwing on, on the show. Um, and I said to them, you know, it's, it's, you know, when we're designing these incentives, when you're designing these incentives about people using transactions more privately, we're up against the BlockFi's of the world. You know, Michael Saylor posted a tweet that had like 2,000 retweets or something like that. Um, and it was, a the ideal mobile wallet is a KYC wallet that automatically gives you a loan in us dollars based on, on, on your Bitcoin as collateral. Um, and then you spend that instead of, of spending Bitcoin directly. Right. And, and when, when these incentive models are being designed, a user is going to consider that as an option over whatever the private alternative is, right? Like they're going to um, consider that interest payment that they could get if they loaned out their Bitcoin with some centralized regulatory compliant non-privacy focused service uh, versus using uh, private transactions, right?
Yeah, yeah. I mean, as I say, that is my biggest cons- concern because if that happens too much, then it won't follow too far behind that they'll decide to, in air quotes, print their own Bitcoin in the back background, you know, and just because, you know, you know, in, unless we sort of can withdraw it and they can be left high and high and dry by basically saying that they have, um, you know, more than they actually do, then we really don't have too many weapons against against that. So for me, that is a huge risk and, you know, something that um, I don't think is talked about enough. Keto, what's up over there? I haven't heard from you in a minute. Uh, not much listening to you guys. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess uh, I, I, I lost my, my stream of thoughts. <laughs> Um, so I'm curious, uh, before we wrap this up, I'm curious on your, your guys' opinions on the fact that mempools are just completely empty right now. Um, is it like, am, am I right to be, you know, I, I could give, you know, maybe, maybe I will admit that I was, uh, you know, a little bit too excited about the price increase. I always am, um, you know, between me and the freaks, like the reason I say stay humble all the time is because I'm never humble in bull markets. Um, so I'm just constantly trying to remind myself and I might as well remind the freaks at the same time. Um, so maybe I got, I definitely got a little bit too far ahead of myself, especially when I was in all caps saying 200K by conference day. Um, you know, that kind of half started as a joke because you just get so much engagement whenever you say it. Um, but I kept saying it. So anyway, I deserve to fucking eat crow on that. But mempools being completely empty has completely thrown me for a loop. Like this is not, uh, like I was way fucking wrong about this. I could give two shits about the price. I'm a long-term investor in Bitcoin. You know, I, I, I practice what I preach. You know, I don't sell Bitcoin. I fucking, Stay humble, stack sats in that regard. I just constantly am just accumulating as much Bitcoin as I can fucking get. Um, so when the price goes down, it's to me, it's it's truly stacker's paradise. It's just more time to accumulate. I've I've con- I'm just fiat mining. I'm making my fiat salary and I'm just putting into Bitcoin. Um the, the mempool being completely clear right now, uh, amid a 50% hash rate reduction. Uh, is just seems fucking like a bad sign. Am I wrong? So my point of view, Matt, is is that the mempool is completely driven by price. You know, um, you know, up and down. Um, you know, I think if you know, as you were saying, you know, the number of people in coin joins and the like is not really material to drive mempool usage. Um, in fact, most of the stuff that we talk talk about is not really material to drive. You know, if, 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 if we look at the number of blockchain.com wallets, we shouldn't be too surprised that when the price is not going up or down, when it's kind of just hanging around the same, then the mempool just stays empty because um, people are, you know, they've, they've kind of, those who are gonna sell have obviously sold, those uh, who were waiting on the sidelines to buy have obviously still still on the side sidelines, um, and the majority of Bitcoin's usage is driven by people trying to uh, 
um, you know, basically um, make or or not lose um, whatever they have put um, um, sort of into it. So you know, it won't stay this way forever, and and the mempool usage will go up again, and maybe it'll clear clear again, and perhaps it won't. You know, at some point it won't, right? At some point, the number of users who Do just kind of believe that. It, yeah, because you know, at some point, the number of users who will just be using it, like you and I do, um, will get to a point where the block size is just too small, right? That that day will come. It's obviously not here here today. We obviously don't have the usage in the world today for that to be true. Um, for now, it's still a, still a price driven you know thing, and and we shouldn't be too surprised about the fifty percent drop in hash rate because if mempools pretty much empty it's you know even if the you know the the hash hash rate drops it's not going to suddenly change that all that much i mean you know we we lose a few minutes perhaps but it's not really a major effect so well my point is my point is in in difficulty adjustment periods where hash is where it's trending down like right now where we're projecting a negative difficulty adjustment after the previous one which was also significantly the biggest negative we've ever had usually fee pressure is higher in those situations right because blocks are coming in slower yeah 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 and i I think if the mempool was full when this happened if if we were sitting with a serious backlog when this happened i think we would absolutely be feeling the pressure today um i think we'd be paying high high fees but just the fact that it is empty, you know, and the price hasn't moved moved much. I think um, there's no particular reason why it would suddenly fill that I can think of. So, Keto Miner, what are your thoughts here? Thank you, Craig. Those are very insightful. I, I think the the mempool pressure is a conspiracy against me. It's always full when I need it to be. Empty, <laughs> when I need it to be full. So. And four months ago, I had fucking fee FOMO. I was like, I'm never going to be able to pay 23 sats per byte again. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, can... yeah, it's pretty weird that it's so empty now, and uh, maybe it's a vacation effect. I don't know. So, so you want to hear my the Bar- Barrow Dell is coming out at two hours and thirty minutes into the show because only the rider dies made it this far. Um, to me, it's a sign. Well, first of all, clearly. You know, not enough of the freaks are using CoinJoin. Like CoinJoin should be a, you know, buyer of last resort of a block space. It should just be a constant fee pressure thing. Uh, we we should have so many people using CoinJoin that there's just always a reserve demand for block space. Um, so that's unfortunate to see. Um, and then the second thing is, I think, I think it's, you know. There's there's still a shit ton of traders, Craig, that are that are trading these these price movements even when we're in sideways zone. Um, so I don't think the traders have left us. Uh, to me, it's a more of a sign that 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 people are using these custodial they're, they're using these custodial regulated services rather than actually holding their own keys and using Bitcoin. I mean, even if you are the least consumer of block space as a sovereign Bitcoin user, you're still should be making, you know, a withdrawal a week from whatever your regulated custodian is. Um, I'm not even saying you put it into CoinJoin, which you should, but 
you know, if, if you're just making a, a transaction to your cold storage and you're stacking to cold storage, um, you should at least be making one transaction a week uh, or, or one transaction every two weeks. How many people are doing that right now? Like, are there, are there more than 5,000 of us? Okay, but Matt, if, if people are using custodial wallets w when they buy and sell, then why did the mempool uh, go up so much when the price was going up? Because, you know, in theory, they wouldn't be making on-chain, you know, um, transactions at that time if it was all just being done with sort of money behind the scenes. So, I mean, there's there's two theories that I'm working with. Uh, the first is, uh, you know, leveraged Bitcoin trading on bucket shops, um, where where you have, and we even saw, you know, before uh, Bitmex cleaned up shop and started adding KYC and and truly blocking Americans. Like we saw hedge funds that were acquiring Bitcoin, whether through OTC or some other method, um, and then they were sending it to BitMEX or or where, whatever bucket shop they wanted to use um, to do leverage Bitcoin trading. And they didn't really trust that much funds on there. So they were constantly moving back and forth. Um, and then the other thing is, is shitcoin trading. Like the shitcoin market has just completely gotten destroyed. Because uh, I guess my thought is, is unfortunately, uh, if if you're a regulated, you know, semi-wealthy person in America or one of these developed countries, your main incentive to to leave your regulated custodial exchange is to go send it to a shitcoin bucket shop and try and buy some shitcoins. Well, do do we actually see the same decrease in transactions on other chains? I I don't know. I don't follow any of that shit. I, I assume there's only like one other chain, which is Ethereum, that has any kind of transaction pressure. But there's just always have like shenanigans happening over there. So even who even knows? Like right now, fees are up because there's some uh, Uniswap clone that's spamming the chain supposedly. Yeah, that that uh, your theory might might be right, Matt. Um, the beauty of Bitcoin is that we just don't know. Um, it's my, uh, my worry, Craig. My worry, Craig, is that mempools being this like it's not even just like kind of empty. Like it's literally one sat per byte just gets you into the next gets you into the next block. It's not even like kind of empty. It's it's fucking barren. And, and, and my concern is that it shows that we're way earlier than we thought we were. Even I thought we were. And I think I thought we were way earlier than most people think. Um, which is fine in the grand scheme of things, except that it means we're more vulnerable. There's less sovereign Bitcoin holders than people think there are. I agree 100% with that. 100%. That is, as I said, that is my biggest concern. I think if we actually knew how many non-custodial Bitcoin holders there were, we would be shocked at that figure as being as low as it was. I, 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 yeah, we have a long way to go.
And the mempool being this mempools being this fucking empty is is to me is like tangible proof of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, look, you know, I, I'm I'm quite sure that if you got every wallet dev in a room and asked them if they had, you know, hundreds of thousands of users, they'd just say say no. You know, it's not. It really isn't the the sort of sort of case. I mean, the fact that we still can't outdo shitty blockchain.com i mean really it just shows we have a long way to, way to go um and, and you know that's that's kind of okay um i'm not too concerned if you look at the growth of the internet um it did take decades you know it feels like it happened very very fast but i mean it did take quite a bit of time um it gets to a certain point where it becomes a need to know rather than a sort of a nice, nice to know um, skills set. We're not there today. We're definitely not. Um, so when that happens, I, I can't say, but hopefully, you know, in the next two to three years. And then I think we'll see a bit of a step change. As we kind of saw around the year, you know, 2001 to 2005 or six, you know, we really saw a big change in the number of people who understood how to email, how to browse, browse the web, how to kind of, you know, just get their shit done online. And Bitcoin is definitely pre that. It's not in that space yet. So, you know, we need to go through, you know, the sort of bull cycle that we're in now and maybe one, one more in order to get to that sort of point. Um, so, yeah, we're early. Keto, am I being too bearish? Jo jo just enough. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree one hundred percent with with that. We, I, I think we are like uh, late seventies, early eighties uh, in computing now. Um, still, still the the period where people are building Apple One cases out of wood in their garage. And Keto would know. And yeah, we 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 are definitely overestimating some numbers, like even things like how, how many uh, Tor nodes are around on the internet. Uh, actually, I I learned the, the real number quite recently, and it's scaringly. What's so, the real number? Less than ten thousand. Yeah, I would say less than okay. So less than ten thousand sovereign Bitcoin node users, right? Well, no, it's uh, it doesn't include the the user uh, troll well, nodes. It just uh, counts the relays and exit nodes. But still, it's it's crazy. It's crazy small actually. And uh, maybe the numbers we see for Bitcoin nodes and for Lightning nodes are actually accurate, and there isn't that many hiding. So, so first of all, we have winsome hacks in. Uh... Oh, good, good, uh, good username in uh, on Twitch coming into the live chat saying that I've flipped bearish. I've not flipped bearish. I am more bullish than ninety nine percent of people on this fucking planet. Okay, but it's important to be realistic in terms of sovereign Bitcoin users, and that's that's different than price, by the way. Um, I think it's it's detached from price to a degree because we do have a lot of people who buy Bitcoin. And they do increase the price as long as there's not rehypothecation, which we're, we're early still on. I don't think there is really. Um, so when Michael Saylor, for instance, goes, and I know he's a very controversial figure, goes and buys a bunch of Bitcoin, 
and then sends it from his custodial broker to his custodial wallet, um, that does increase buy pressure. Uh, so I think most people are underestimating price still. Um, and I, 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 I stand by the fact that I think people will be extremely surprised at the upside in terms of, in terms of price. Um, I think people are greatly overestimating the number of sovereign Bitcoin users. So let's let's just go for, through some estimates. I'm just curious before we wrap this up. Um, so how many how many people got look once again, there's no way for us to easily calculate these numbers. Um, which is why proof of work is so important. Like the reason we have distributed proof of work is because you have this verifiable um, real work that anyone can verify and know it exists. Um, but when it comes to user numbers and everything and, and node numbers, there's no way to prove one node, one user. Um, and there's no way to definitively prove how many individual users are out there. Um, Maybe it's a little bit easier because people have such horrible privacy right now, but you're still making a guess. You're making an educated guess. And ideally, where I want us to be in five years is I, I don't want Glassnode to have a business model. Like I want them to look at the chain and just have no fucking idea what the fuck is going on. Um, but where we stand right now, how many how many individuals around the world do we think are holding their own keys? We'll start with Craig. I was hoping you were not going to start with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, sure. Probably less than 100,000, Matt. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'll co-sign that. What do you, do you think, Keto, do you think that's, are you under on less yeah, than 100,000? My, my, my number was 100, about 100,000. Okay. So, so all these numbers, when people say like, there's like 30 million Bitcoin users or whatever, um, they're just completely off base. Yeah. Or maybe they're, they're, they're including like Robinhood users or whatever, like self full custodial people. Right. But I mean, Matt, who owned a personal computer in the mid eighties? I mean, okay, that's, that's fine. That's, I'm not saying that this means Bitcoin's dead. I just want some, you know, realism here in the discussion, right? No, no, okay. sure. I, I, I agree. But, you know, I, I think a, an important, you know, kind of point on the plus side is that, you know, if, if, if you were around at that time and you were sort of part of that kind of journey um, of being into, you know, whether you owned a Commodore 64 or a, Sinclair or, you know, that that kind of world was the most creative time in computing that I've ever known. Um, it was really amazing. And it's it's just fucking cool to be to be, you know, part of this at that time. You know, I, I have no doubt that Bitcoin is going to go the same route of just, you know, becoming a def default and de facto part of our lives but being able to build on it and make changes to it as we are doing because believe me in you know 10 to 20 years time you're going to be tinkering on the very edges you're not going to be working on on the kind of core stuff as we are today um you know that's a great um time to just be in it and, no like 100 uh, percent correct look yeah uh, look, all of us, all of us here, whether it's the three of us, me, you, and Keto, 
or whether it's the ride or die freaks that are in the live chat or whether it's the ride or die freaks that are listening to this as soon as it gets uploaded and your streaming sats, like we're all in, we're all in. And you know, there's no place I'd rather be. I have no regrets whatsoever. As far as I'm concerned, I'm one of the luckiest men in the world. You know, I'm sure, super man. grateful to be here. It's fucking awesome. That being said, I share this podium with less than hundred K people that are holding their own keys. Um, so, okay. So we have that for keys. Uh, how many, how many users are using their own node individuals? I go first. Yeah. You uh, go first this time. <laughs> I would say between two and five K. Oof. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a probably about, about right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, I agree as well. Um, I, I like that we have consensus here. Yeah, I, I was going to say 5K. I was going to say less than 5K. Um, okay, so we have that for using nodes, using their own node. So we have 100,000 people holding their own keys. Then we have about 5,000 people, less than 5,000 people using their own node. Um, how many are holding their own keys, using their own node, and using Lightning? Probably about the same. Yeah, yeah, well, perhaps half of that, you know, I would guess. Yeah, I think there's a decent amount of people that are using their own node. I mean, look, even we had, we had that like OG who fucking lost a thousand Bitcoin in the Electrum phishing scam and he wasn't using his own node. Guy had a thousand Bitcoin and it was in a hot wallet on Electrum. Yeah. Um. Okay, so I mean, yeah, I would say I would say less than five. I would say significantly less than five thousand. I would say like twenty five hundred, three thousand people are using their own node and Lightning. Now, Lightning does have the benefit that there's probably a substantial amount of retail using Lightning without their own node, whether they're using like a Moon Wallet and with two U's, um, or if they're using a, a, a completely custodial option like a Blue Wallet or a Wallet of Satoshi. There's probably or like Strike. There's probably a significant amount that are using Lightning without their own node, um, but even that is probably less than 15k or 20k, right? I'm going to take your silence as agreement. Yeah. Um, okay, so we have a hundred thousand, less than a hundred thousand, are holding their own keys. We have less than five thousand are using their own node. We have. Uh, less than 3,000 using their own node and Lightning. Um, how many do we think are using CoinJoin? 42. 42? <laughs> <laughs> less than 2,000, right? Yeah, for sure. Right, so, so the listenership of this show is a little bit over 20,000. So, so, you know, Dispatch is, you know, six months old, but we've, we've basically inherited the majority of, of Tales from the Crypt listeners. But let's say Rabbit Hole Recaps has been going on for three years. We got over 20,000 listeners per episode. Um, and I have not shut up about CoinJoin. And we have 10% of them are using CoinJoin. Or less than 10% of them are using CoinJoin. It's still pretty pretty hard, Matt. I mean, it's 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 not the easiest thing, right? You have no, to have you, you you don't have to run your own node to to use CoinJoin. 
Right. But I think the majority of people that are using CoinJoin, oh, except for maybe Wasabi, the, uh, the overwhelming majority of Wasabi users are are light users or SPV users. Yeah, that and, and Samurai users as well. I think there are way more Samurai users using their servers than running their own node. That's interesting. I guess I guess from from pure user numbers, yes. Rather than volume of Bitcoin. I would say volume of Bitcoin, the majority are probably using their own node. Because if you're gonna have any kind of substantial amount of Bitcoin in there, I, I my guess is is the majority of coin join volume across the base across all implementations is like you know, a thousand hardos that 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 have the majority of of the volume like when you measured in bitcoin terms would you agree on that sounds about right right yeah yeah so i guess my point is not to like completely deflate the room my point was you know that you know we have a we have a long road ahead of us and uh Anyone who thinks like the fight is over is completely off base. Like this is this the start of a of a long war. Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess you could see it see it as a as a, as a war. I just see it see it as a curve, right? Every single time there's a price in, in, increase, the number of users go up. Some of those users, obviously, a quite a small number, um, on a percentage base base basis, just inflates every one of those figures, right? Uh, and so it will go go on. But what I'm sort of hoping is that, as I say, once people realize that actually your privacy is is in some ways worse when you receive your salary salary in Bitcoin and then you go and spend that UTXO, um, they'll start to kind of realize that these tools are much more important than what they had thought, or they probably wouldn't have even thought of, thought of, thought of them. So, you know, I think it's, it's also a question of just getting that education out, out there, which you're doing that, you know, it, it just takes, takes time. You know, the world does not change fast. So we're two hours and 50 minutes in. Um, this is where the real Baradell comes out. Um, so my- <laughs> Once again, not by price. This is just on individual freedoms. Um, and I think the Bitcoin network can survive even if individuals are completely fucked. The majority of individuals are completely fucked. But um, what I expect to happen is, is, yeah, so the best thing we have going for us, I agree, Craig, is that as adoption increases and the circular economy increases, people are going to spend Bitcoin more often because they're going to be earning Bitcoin. And if if we're right and their fiat is completely worthless, especially in uh, you know weaker economies, but I I think even in America and the and the EU, um, we're going to see those currencies become worse and worse store of values as as the years go by. Uh, it seems to be amplifying really quickly. Um, people are going to be paid in Bitcoin, and they're going to want to hold Bitcoin. Uh, this is part of our thesis, uh, most of our thesis, I think. Um, is that we expect Bitcoin to be the money that people want to hold and people want to spend, or, or the people that the money that people want to hold, and because they're holding it and the majority of their wealth is in it and they're earning it, they want to spend it, right? Um, and when they come time to spend it, and they realize that they're losing all this privacy, that that you know they go and buy, 
buy a sandwich or a car or some shit and the person they pay knows, you know, how much they make or their boss knows what they bought this weekend, um, they're going to go and try and seek out better privacy, right? Like that's the best argument, I think. The, 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 the number one incentive we have going for us is that as users get burned, they will seek out better alternatives uh, to improve their situation. Now, my concern, at least in the short to medium term, is what's going to happen is users are going to realize that because they're not idiots. Um, and they're going to go to like custodial privacy solutions. So the perfect example I have of that is I've had people pay me. Um, some people are, you know, relatively well known in the Bitcoin space. And they know where my tilt is in terms of Bitcoin. And they know I'm going to look at their transaction when they send it to me. And so what they do is they send from Strike or from Cash App because I can't tell anything about their transaction from it. I know they sent it from Cash App. It's very obvious. There's 98 inputs going to like all different types of addresses. Um, obviously, they didn't construct a transaction with 98 fucking inputs going to different directions. Uh, or like it's like six inputs with like 98 outputs is what I meant to say. Um, but... It gives them privacy from everyone except Cash App or whoever Cash App is giving that information to or if it leaks or whatnot, right? So I think we're going to be up against, we're going to be competing with like these, there's going to be a lot of people that say like that's good enough privacy. Is like you just get the privacy from like a regulated company that gives you the custodial privacy. Yeah, you know, a few years years ago, I really thought that the privacy battle was just lost, you know, just completely lost. But I, you know, you are seeing people care about it more these days. I, you know, I don't know what the future future holds, but I, I I'd like to think that that trend becomes more that people start to care care more. Um, maybe that is overly optimistic. I'm willing to accept that it might 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 be, but you know, it's very hard to take what we currently perceive to be how much people care and then put that forward into the future and then say well how much they care today will continue to be how much they they care you know we we just don't know they might actually care less um but it probably won't stay the same you know so yeah yeah so you know i think that you know there there is some some hope that the trend at least has been away from you know, just give all of my private information to large company X and it'll be fine. You know, I, I, I think that there's been a trend away from that. It's for sure not changed the world yet, but um, it does give me some some hope um, that in future people may care, care more. I, I guess Snowden helped a lot with that. Every, no one remembers it. There's only like 10 of us. But we want to do the numbers again. There's like uh, <laughs> there's like 2,000 people that remember. Uh, I, I think I think the, the bullish case is that um, is that I think people will go to the custodial privacy options and then they're going to get censored because that's what always happens, right? You're just going to have um, you're just going to have like the PayPal effect or whatever. Like, like people are going to have their accounts closed. They're going to have their money taken. They're going to have transactions blocked. They're going to have information leaked about them. There's going to be massive hacks, more and more hacks where, where user information is taken and leaked. 
um, and people will learn that they have to take their sovereignty back. But I think there's going to be a middle ground period um, where users acknowledge that they have privacy concerns, but instead of seeking the sovereign option, which is always going to be more difficult, they're going to go for that centralized custodial option. And we're just going to have to get through that like turbulent period. Yeah, I think that that's, that's right, Matt, because, you know, just to take an example from where I live currently, you know, South Africa has this stupid law, which is decades old, which basically says you cannot export um, any of our local currency overseas. You know, they see that as sort of, it's, it's, I guess, not dissimilar to the way China kind of views things. Um, so what the Reserve Bank here is trying to do is to say, well, you can't, if you buy uh, Bitcoin on a local exchange here, you can't send it to an international exchange and sell it, sell it there because that obviously goes against this law. Now, obviously, we know that you can withdraw it to your wallet here. You can send it through CoinJoin and there's not really much that anyone can tell after that, that, that point. So there's a real incentive there to you know, to take your money into your own hands versus keeping it in some kind of an online place where all of these rules are, are sort of, you know, there. And I think that those rules are going to get worse, you know, as the value of fiat drops over time. So governments will try whatever, adding whatever regulations they can to try and protect, protect it and trying to protect the flight of capital as they perceive it dropping against some other place is one of the key things that they'll 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 do and and the obvious out is to take custody of your own funds so hopefully they do do that because i think that that's going to be a way that people start to realize the value of taking you know taking it into your own hands yeah no i agree i just think it's going to be uh it's just going to be longer than most people realize, but I think that uh, both you and Keto agree with me on that. I'm just reiterating it. Yeah. Um, guys, this has been a fantastic conversation. I know I said we were going to keep it under two hours privately, but uh, here we are. Um, I appreciate you guys' time. I appreciate all the work you've put into your respective projects and what you've helped. You know, you've helped so many sovereign Bitcoiners. I, I'm super grateful for both of you guys. Um, all I think- of our ten users. Yeah, all of our, all, all, all of your five hundred users. Um, I uh, I think this is a really insightful conversation. I think the freaks really appreciate it. I hope I hope they did. Um, do you guys have any final thoughts before we wrap this baby up? Um, no, Matt. It's been it's been great ch- chat. I, I hope you kind of figured out halfway along that part of this was me asking you things and getting the information out of your brain, which has been great. So thank you. Yeah, fa- thanks, Matt. As usual, it was very interesting, and and thanks, Craig. It was it was very nice talking with you. Yeah, you too. I appreciate you both. I appreciate all the ride or dies who joined us instead of uh, Euro twenty twenty today in the live chat. Um, I appreciate all the freaks who continue to support the show through the podcasting 2.0 apps. Uh, a reminder that is newpodcastapps.com. My favorite is Breeze. You just open it up, you search Citadel Dispatch, and you can stream stats directly to the show. Um, you can also donate via citadeldispatch.com. Um, we also have two new items on the merch store, uh, citadeldispatch.com slash stack, brought to you by Ride or Die Freaks that are setting those up for us. 
Uh, we have BTC Pins is providing a Citadel Dispatch magnet. Uh, 30% of that goes to me, 30% goes to him, and 30% goes to OpenSats um, for supporting Bitcoin development. And then we have uh, Ride or Die Free Quinn Solo, who is doing Citadel Dispatch Flasks. Uh, same deal. A third goes to me, a third goes to him, and a third goes to open source development via OpenSats. Um, we still have the hats available. A lot of you freaks have reached out for the hats. I appreciate all the support there. Once again, the reminder is that dispatch.com slash stack. Um, I'm really excited. I don't have next week's guests lined up yet, but the week after that, July 20th, is going to be Diverter and Econo Alchemist uh, are going to both be rejoining the show. Uh, for a special home mining episode, I think all the freaks should be trying to seek out uh, ASICs right now. I think it's uh, they're very cheap, uh, and it's a really good way to stack KYC free while supporting the network. Um, so stay tuned for that. And I appreciate you all. I, thank you so much, Keto, and thank you so much, Craig. I look forward to having you guys on the show again soon. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Reluctantly crouched at the starting line Engines pumping and thumping in time The green light flashes, the flags go up Churning and burning, they yearn for the cup They deftly maneuver and muscle for rank Fuel burning fast on an empty tank Reckless and wild, they pour through the turns Their prowess is potent and secretly stern As they speed through the finish, the flags go down The fans get up and they get out of town The arena is empty, except for one man Still driving and striving as fast as he can The sun has gone down and the moon has come up And long ago somebody left with the cup But he's driving and striving and hugging the turns And thinking of someone for whom
love your freaks. Use your own node. Use CoinJoin. Open some lightning channels. Stay on both stack sets. I'll see you on Thursday for Rabbit Hole Recap. Cheers.